1: Astonishing Legends is supported by The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, Harrys.com, and Blue Apron.
2: And we're back. Thank you for all the kind reviews on iTunes. We greatly appreciate them. You'll not hear us make a request like this often, but the Astonishing Research Corps
3: is seeking a theoretical physicist to join its ranks. We have an applied physicist already, thank you, Devin, and that's awesome, but now we'd like a theoretical one. And no, that doesn't mean someone who is theoretically a physicist. We are looking for the real deal. If you or someone you know might fit the bill, please reach out to us at our Facebook page, on Twitter, or via email at astonishinglegends at gmail.com. If you email us, please state clearly in the subject line what it's about. Before we get into the show tonight, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge a woman who passed away a few days ago that was instrumental in my career as a film and video editor. Without that career behind me, there would be no Astonishing Legends. Her name was Beth Lemure, and she was a producer, writer, director, and friend who hired me to cut my very first music video way back in early 2001. I always loved her spirit, lust for life, and creative desire, and I was in awe of her for being a woman who at a young age had her own company, which became responsible for producing dozens upon dozens of the iconic music videos of the early 2000s. In fact, she hired me to edit the first music video I ever did, which was a big deal because as an editor... Believe me, you can't get that first gig if the people that are producing it don't see something exactly like it already on your demo reel. It's the classic cliche that you can't get that first job without experience. The song was Rockin' the Suburbs by Ben Folds, and the music video was produced by Beth and directed by the amazingly talented Weird Al Yankovic. There's a link to it in the show notes tonight. I wouldn't change the experience of working with Beth on that project and many others after it for anything. They were defining moments in my career and she was instrumental in helping me get to the next step both in terms of my street cred and also just having more self-confidence in my work she just finished shooting her very own independent film which she wrote and directed called daisy winters i haven't seen it yet but i know her heart and soul will be in it when it's released beth i will miss you a great deal as will the rest of the world which was far better off when you were in it plus you were from roswell new mexico And now I'll have to be eternally forlorn about not having you on the show to share your experience of growing up there. The message from us here for you guys, our listeners, whom we care about very much, is that if you find yourself in a dark place for any reason at all, reach out to your friends and family because they love you and they will bend over backwards to help you. Every one of us is important to someone. Always remember that. Welcome
2: back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. They've done it again. Those lousy bastards have done it again. They knew this was going to happen, and when. And they gave me all that bilge about a power failure. They knew. They just didn't want me to be able to warn anyone. John A. Keel, The
3: Mothman Prophecies. Join us tonight for the third part of our series on the astonishing legend of the
2: Mothman. Halloween may have come and gone, but just like the Mothman did back in 1967, this Astonishing legend series is going to stick around a little longer. That's right. He, uh, he stuck around all the
3: way till Christmas, sort of. Well, he bailed out. Yeah, he did bail uh, shortly before the holiday after a tragic, tragic incident with the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which we mentioned in part two.
2: And not much more. Immediately after that,
3: right? No.
1: No.
2: Each part of this adds to this whole mystery, each little strange twist and turn. Yes, it does. And so let's recap
3: a little bit what we talked about in the last episode, which was two weeks ago. We took a look at a few more incidents that took place in Point Pleasant and the surrounding areas. We talked about Connie Carpenter's encounter with the Mothman at the golf club in Mason, where she saw him in broad daylight. We talked about her ensuing conjunctivitis, or pink eye, and other folks who had come down with that, including John Keel. We discussed the distraction theory as it related to the defense logistics agency in the area and the possibility in a theory that one of our ARC members' friends had that enriched uranium was being moved through the area at the time. And we also touched on Chief Cornstalk's death, his ensuing curse on the area, and one of my favorites of the anecdotal stories, Bo Scherzer's Bloodmobile UFO story, which truly might be one of the greatest UFO stories I've ever heard. I just, <laughs> I so wish there was a picture. I st- still, a- you know, it's funny when you Google it, there's some images that come up. Yeah. But I still love when you said to me, it's like, was a giant
2: straw <laughs> <coming> <laughs> well, <down?" laughs> that's, well, that's certainly been in a few sci-fi movies. Yeah. I think Starship Troopers where the large bug was sucking the brains out of people's heads. Yeah. Uh, The other one that it reminded me of, this is in Toy Story. Wasn't it the stuffed little three eyed aliens in the toy bin? Oh, yes. The claw nose. Yes. (laughs) It comes down, it's plucking uh, (laughs) plushy aliens out. But this was far more sinister. Yeah. And we'll get to this in the theories section in part four, but it Begs the question, why? What, yes, what were they after? I don't think the answer is so immediate that comes to mind. So
3: We also talked about the Men in Black story. There was the particular one with Connie Christensen and her family with uh, the gentleman who had the... The bug eyes. The bug eyes, <laughs> the, which only, only one of which moved... Squishy shoes, (laughs) green wires coming out of his socks. He was very polite though.
2: Well, no, he's very polite and he's exact. I wish uh, people come knocking at your door could tell you exactly how long this was going to take. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm going to be at your door for the next 15 minutes. The description was, again, I go back to him, just whatever's underneath the facade is just barely holding it together for 40 minutes. Yeah. And uh, And sweating, I think. Yes. And take
3: his little yellow pill 10 minutes in. yeah.
2: Yeah. A little strange. And
3: then we finished last week with the tragic collapse of the Silver Bridge just before Christmas of 1967, December 15th, 1967, actually. That incident claimed the lives of 46 people.
2: Two of which were never found.
3: Yeah. And the whole thing took only just 60 seconds. And we're going to talk a little bit or a lot about what exactly happened to the bridge later tonight. And finally, we told you about the experiences that Kiel was having with regard to receiving a form of paranormal chatter that seemed to be deliberate misinformation mixed with real information that slowly began to drive him completely crazy before he realized that some of it was real after all when the bridge collapsed and some other things happened in the ensuing months and years that correlated with the information he was getting. And it's really
2: mind-blowing, actually. Well, the misinformation may not have been purposely deceitful, just not able to be concretely interpreted by those who were giving it to him. Yeah, it could be that
3: the senders were having an issue with their keystrokes. (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) in a matter of speaking,
3: sure. Yeah. All right, we've covered a lot of anecdotes in The Mothman Prophecies, but what I want to encourage people to do if they're into this story and if they're enjoying a lot of what we're talking about is to buy John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies. Yes. It's truly amazing, and there's Stunning information on pretty much every page. And there's no way for us to include all of it in our show. And that's not what we want to do. We're, we're talking some about that book. We're talking about other events and mixing it all together. But if you want to get, you know, the Bible on what happened in Point Pleasant in 66 and 67, you have to get that book.
2: Yeah. Lauren Coleman also wrote a pretty good book on it. Yes. And his specialty is cryptids, which is interesting because he's coming at it from that angle. Yes. The Mothman is just an unknown beast of Unknown Origin, but uh, we have a link to that with the last episode on our webpage for the show. So check that out as well.
3: He actually has done a lot of work on that. He has a great website too. There's a whole ton of information there and it's all very entertaining. All right, so whenever we have to read a book for the show, I am always struck, usually, there's one or two stories in it that really
2: freak me out for whatever reason. Jump out at you?
3: Yeah, they jump out at me. Sometimes it's- Literally
2: jumped out at somebody, the anecdote is about.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes, yeah, exactly. In Monsters Among Us, in Linda Godfrey's book, it was the two-dimensional wolf that came out of the corn. (laughs) I had a problem with that.
2: Well, there's a lot of things wrong with that from our standpoint of logic. It's an animation cell of of a wolf that- it came out of the corn. It
3: just doesn't make sense. And then in Kiel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, there was a little anecdote that really struck a chord with me, and I wanted to share it with our audience because it ties into an ongoing theme that we're going to introduce a little bit, sort of theoretical discussion around this, even though part four is going to be our primary theory discussion. But I think you might be able to call this incident the first significant UFO sighting that you could connect to what MUFON would call a flap
2: throughout 1966, 1967. Yeah, a rash or a hot spot of a lot of activity and sightings. Yes.
3: And there was something about this story that really struck a chord with me. So in March of 1966, there was a woman who was sitting in her car waiting to pick her kids up from school in Point Pleasant when she noticed a metal disc hovering in the sky above the playground. The altitude was not indicated, but this woman noticed something extremely strange about this craft. There was an opening in the side, like a doorway. Keel describes it as a kind of aperture. I love apertures. For those of you who don't know what they are, photographers will, of course, because it's one of the coolest things in the world about a camera lens. It's the opening made up of overlapping symmetrical moving parts that can be closed down or opened up to let more or less light through the lens. And technically, when you look up the word aperture, it's just an opening of any kind that allows light to pass through it, so it doesn't necessarily have to be mechanical, but in most cases, that's what you think of when you say that word. And I think that's probably what he meant when he described it that way in the book.
2: You'll sometimes see them as uh, doorway portals, I think, in spaceships. <laughs> well, know, no, like, that's what? exactly right. Well, I know that's what we're getting to, but it just it made me flash on, uh, I think, was it alien? The yes. first one? Yeah. Like they're closing off uh, dock portals to close down the monster. It's know. always an aperture. In fact, yeah. my
3: favorite spaceship aperture was the one in the top of the Millennium Falcon when Lando yeah, Calrissian right. pops up that's to right. rescue Luke yeah. Yeah. from falling to his death under the Cloud City. Yeah. It just looks cool. It does. It looks yeah. amazing. And then there's also Aperture Laboratories, which is yeah. connected to a game Portal, which right. I'm sure many of our listeners have played. Or there you go. Came out a while ago, but there's several versions of it now. I digress. <laughs> Uh, So this woman's sitting in her car, waiting for her kids, and this UFO is hovering over the playground with an open aperture in the side of the craft. Now that alone would be enough to rattle most folks, but there was more to it than that. There was a man standing
2: outside the doorway, in the middle of the air, floating. So he's doing a spacewalk. But Not in space, yeah, and with no tether, right? He's just floating outside, yes, the door, like some sort of Norse god,
3: I guess. But he, <laughs> right. uh, he's wearing some kind of shiny silver skin tight outfit, and apparently had incredibly long silver hair. He <laughs> sounded to me like a member of the village people, actually. If they had a spaceman, <laughs> yeah. Although this was 1966, and the village people didn't get together until 11 years later. No,
2: but it, it sounded like a storm, one of the mutants there.
3: He probably showed up early for the village people auditions because, you know, they have a problem with time. They don't know. Like, <laughs> what? Is it really? time? Is it time to audition? Uh, yeah.
2: No. Okay. <laughs> well, no, but it's an odd sight. And as we've seen so often in these descriptions that we're relaying here, something that is, seems like it's coming out of a comic book.
3: Yeah. And And a
2: period comic book of the late 50s, early 60s type.
3: Yeah, and she noticed that it was looking down into the schoolyard. And I guess at that point, her kids came bounding up to the car. And they, like, got in the car. She looked away as they were climbing in. And when she looked back... Disco UFO dude was gone.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Shiny silver suits are very common. So it must be a very traded uh, commodity textile elsewhere off this planet.
3: Right. It's like the spice routes were in days of yore. There's some some (laughs) planet that's covered with a shiny silver suit.
2: Yeah. Um, merchandise. No, it, again, it comes up a lot. Now, what you don't hear, though, is the long flowing silver hair. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Again, that is that is superhero comic book stuff. Yeah. Well, and you know who else had shiny silver suits? Uh, like Baikal.
0: The, yes. The well, swimmers. That's what I'm
2: saying. Yeah. yeah. There's something about metallic outfits. Indrid Cold had that very dark navy or graphite colored metallic looking overcoat and pants. So they have much more advanced and breathable fabrics than we do. Yeah, well, they should, of course. Yes, you would guess that. And they can walk in midair.
3: So Keel had said that in the Ohio River Valley specifically, and we're going to talk more about the world at large later, but he had said that a lot of people saw UFOs in the summer of 66, which was before everything was starting to really ramp up with the Mothman. But once the Mothman stories came out, then people started coming forward and saying, hey, you know what, a few months ago, X, Y, and Z happened, you know.
2: That happens a lot. People won't generally come forward if they're the first one because they don't want to be singled out as the crazy person. Yeah. So they feel more comfortable once stories start emerging.
3: Right. The climate changes. It's suddenly it's okay to talk about this. Well,
2: exactly. Especially in this close-knit town, the small town. The other thing I wanted to say is you have to consider that just because no one's reported it may not mean, of course, that no one saw anything. And also it may not have been the start of UFO activity because no one has seen it. You know right. There's a lot of reports of cloaked things coming into view and also disappearing. That's true. Yeah.
3: And even kill wrote in his book, when he and Mary Heyer were, I'm pretty sure it was Mary, might have been yeah. somebody else, but I'm pretty sure it was her. They witnessed an object go behind a cloud yeah. that was a, clearly a UFO, or at least they felt that it was a UFO. Right. And it was behind the cloud for an inordinately long yeah. amount of time, yeah. longer than it would have taken to traverse behind it. and. Then while it was out of sight, suddenly there was the sound of a prop plane and a little small Cessna-type plane emerged from the other side of the cloud.
2: (laughs) Excuse me while I change into costume here for something more appropriate for you folks. Yeah, Yeah.
3: it's bizarre. And in that whole culture of ridiculing people about what they've seen, you have to wonder how much that obscures the reality of what people are seeing all over the world because people are are afraid to come forward. And this is across the case. You could say this about lots of crimes that people are— Unfortunate victims of, or whatever, people don't report things. Yeah. And so we never really do have a real view of what's actually happening in the world with respect to this and a lot of things, because a lot of people just don't bother to report it.
2: Well, I think there's two things. They don't bother or don't want to report it because they know that other people are going to ridicule them. Also, it's a self-censoring mechanism where it's like, that could have been real. I can't, I don't know what, no, that, I didn't see what I saw. My mind was playing tricks on me. Right. So people do that themselves because they can't buy into that. That's a good point. Well, it just shows you that there's a lot of factors going on from keeping a lot of these stories from coming forth. Yeah. And then, of course, you consider the other side of it, that you have a lot of people who want to jump on the bandwagon for the notoriety or just join the spirit of it and are probably coming forward with uh, things that aren't true. Right. This is what I like about this particular story. Because
3: it's so crazy, it's either completely crazy and made up, or it's another example of that thing appearing that you can personally comprehend, that works for your mind. And I really love what you said, actually, I think, I can't remember if it was in the first part of the series or the second part, where we were talking about electronic voice phenomena, and you were saying that these things need a putty to work with, something to communicate with us.
2: Yeah, you need to be able to form the sounds out of existing sound. If that's the case, and if you believe any of this at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's our, that's yeah. always our subline. You know? uh, yeah,
3: that's gotta be a t-shirt sooner or later, but then it's possible that UFO sightings, as funky in the truest definition of the word funky in this case, <laughs> yeah. are every bit as real as the car in your driveway, but they're defined by what some other worldly intelligent being thinks you can comprehend. Because after all, they're having to dumb themselves down several dimensions to even appear in the first place. And that's going to be an imprecise process. Thus... Disco wizard floating outside a UFO.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right. Well, that's, now that you start describing it, it would be like Ziggy Stardust instead of orange hair. He's got just silver and with still the skin tight uh, suit. I would love it if David Bowie came back that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the man who fell from earth or the sky or a uh, floating silver disc or it's the village people, but it's their, do you remember their 80s revamping where then they got like, no, no, people are going to like this. We're kind of done with the occupations. Yeah. But going off of that, it's an interesting thing that you bring up because is it them trying to like, ah this is going to freak them out. We better dress like uh, just black suits and a fedora like we're Darren Stevens. We're just business people here. In order to not freak people out so much or maybe see something and pass it off, or is it your own mind? My eye doctor just said, you know, that your eyes are just blobs of brain on a stem. Right. That the eyes are just receiving the light. It's your brain. That's processing what this is. And we'll talk a little bit more about this and the myth of Columbus's ships. Yes. Later on. But basically it's the whole idea of like, can you see something that you were just not prepared to see? It comes back to the whole thing that we mentioned before too about choose a form. And yeah. maybe you're inadvertently
3: or choosing a form. You're choosing the form to see, and you're not even doing it on purpose. And all right, so right, like right. I want to take this a step further. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So on May twenty-fifth of two thousand and seven. Radio Lab, which is pretty much my favorite radio show of all time,
2: and one of your favorites as well. I, yeah, I think it's probably the best podcast, yeah. not even aside from our podcast, it's probably just the- Best podcast. Yeah. <laughs> just a, just <laughs> that
3: interests us, yes, you know? Yes, yeah. it does. And besides Car Talk, Unsolved Mysteries, and In Search Of, it was a major influence for the creation of our show. And they did an episode called Sleep, which had a segment in it called Dreams, and we have a link to that segment in our show notes. In this episode, they talk about dreams and where does the stuff come from that makes these movies in your head, essentially. And it's a fascinating episode. But one thing that they talked about a lot in it was they figured out that at night, your brain is almost like a DJ at a party, right? He's starting the night out for you. And this all takes place after you enter your REM state. But he's starting the night out by playing songs that you heard that day. And that makes sense. He's playing them all the way through from start to finish. And it's not such a big deal. If you wake up during this phase, you're like, oh, yeah, I was just uh, at the thing doing that or whatever. So, however, as the night progresses, the DJ starts mixing and remixing everything. And the later it gets, he gets kind of crazy, almost like he's done a lot of cocaine. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Did they say that? No, they didn't. I'm,
2: um, okay, that's, okay, that's I'm you. I'm retelling
3: the story. Here. I see. Right, there's all a reason right. we're not radio that. But Anyway, <laughs> so you're hearing just a little bit of each song at that point. Things are cutting back and forth and cross and next thing you know, you're wearing your pajamas at the grocery store and carrying a rattlesnake.
2: <laughs> so you're saying <laughs> that they're running out of uh, suitable material. He's well, throwing brain, everything into the kitchen sink.
3: Yeah, your brain just starts to mash all this stuff together. So the leap I'm making here, and I'll readily admit that it is a leap, is that if people are seeing what works for them, like Woody Derenberger seeing Indrid Cold and his flying lantern, and this mom seeing UFO disco wizard, or the little girl (laughs) in Monsters Among Us seeing the werewolf in Torrance, then what happens when a whole lot of people are involved in seeing something? All their minds giving feedback and producing something either more common or crazy or frightening. And So I'm just trying to put out there that this idea that if it is reactionary appearance, what happens when you involve hundreds and hundreds of people?
2: And or why, for a lot of them, is it the same thing? That's what perplexes me. And then people have commented so far saying like, well, it was mass hysteria or the government was spraying crazy juice onto people right. and they're going bananas and they're just recording it a la MK Ultra, Then I would say, why are they then all seeing the same thing or something relatively very similar? It's a very good point. Yeah, you could say like, well, they heard the description from a week prior, and then they're obsessing about it. That's what popped into their heads from this description. But a lot of them, keep in mind, are unrelated. These are people who have not talked to each other or didn't hear the story, well, as far as we know, you know, uh, connected to each other. So kind of original for a lot of these folks. You know what I just realized? I used to joke about letting
3: you off the chain in terms of topics. I guess, And yeah. I will guess with this last run of episodes, I think not only am I like off the chain, I'm out to sea in a chicken wire canoe.
2: <laughs> well, well, I'm very interested to see where this goes All right, well, as we okay. proceed. Well, not just this episode, but in our entire career here where the, you're just really, you have a custom-made tinfoil hat. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, that's another thing we got to get in when we get the new store going. I'm convinced oh, well.
3: that it can be our pet rock. I think we can make <laughs> <We're>, a
2: fortune <laughs> off tinfoil hats. We're going to get sued. Somebody's going to get cut. Just speaking to your point, I think when you come across these things and you, they're just so bizarre and they don't make sense, and they're really even so far off the chain, as you would say, that it doesn't even sound made up.
3: Right. That's where it crosses this line. Yeah. Yeah. And so what if each sighting is custom tailored for the person who's seeing it? what if some intelligent borderline omniscient beings are doing their best to send us messages that come to us in these odd wrappers because there's a gigantic gap between not only our technology but our very plane of existence and it's like trying to place a phone call from one dimension to the next
2: absolutely right but this reminds me again of the scenario where it's maybe an outside influence acting upon your natural brain processes especially when asleep that's all very fascinating and something that scientists don't really have a whole grasp on what happens when you sleep but it reminded me of the movie inception and one concept i really loved in that because it was kind of freaky is that when you enter into other people's dreams you have to be careful not to be noticed too much because the people in the dreams will start to notice you don't belong here right and eventually they might turn on you Yeah, and they become interested, like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. So in that person's brain, there's a subconscious part of it that realizes that this isn't right, even though it looks similar, this is outside foreign material here. Right. So it causes distress. Yeah. These concepts are interesting because the points you're bringing up is what part is going on? Is it a combination of several different things?
3: You could even take this back to crop circles. I know a lot of crop circles are hoaxes, but I do not personally believe that they all are. And... Well, that's even
2: a change from when I first discussed no, this I never, with you. No,
3: <laughs> I never ever said that I thought all crop circles were hoaxes. No, no I think I, I think a lot of them definitely are, but I don't think they all are.
2: No, I think what it was that I was teasing you about is that I think at some point you said the more complex ones seem to be more man-made than the crude ones.
3: In some ways, the, the progression yeah. is, you know, I do feel a little bit like some guy sitting in his basement and yeah. outside of Stonehenge, <laughs> digitally mapping out, you know, and oh, using his Lord. GPS to... Yeah. But the genetic modifications, whatever. That's for another episode. But my, but my... The only thing
2: we can discern from them, it seems to be some kind of communication. Right. Some type of intelligent communication It's definitely that, whether out. it's a hoax or not. Exactly. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, no, you're it's, right. You it's, know, it's, it's a, a message. No, symbols are the most uh, basic and efficient way of communicating complex thoughts.
3: Right. If you're trying to communicate this information and you're going along with my completely unsubstantiated theory, then these messages might be, in a lot of ways, they might be like a message in a bottle that you put out to sea and the, the sender never knows what happens after the message is gone. Right. Who knows if these things aren't just projections, right? So again, like I was saying earlier, imagine that whatever is being presented to us or to these people in Point Pleasant has more than one target or witness. It's like for me, I was thinking about this in Terminator 2 when the T-1000 samples a person, usually by stabbing them to death, and to duplicate their, (laughs) you know, it gets a sample of all their DNA. And then it can clone that person or pretend to be that person or talk like that person. What if these things that these people are seeing are like highly sophisticated drones and they arrive and they just attempt to communicate by appearing materially in a comprehensible way? They're like really sophisticated technology or projections. It's Indrid Cold and his lantern is coming down. And that's the thing that they knew that Woody needed to see in order for him to even listen to what was being said. right? As opposed to a little green
2: man, or whatever. Although that might have worked too for Woody, but... um. (laughs) Well, no, that totally would have freaked him out even more. I mean, he's terrified, of course, because just the circumstances are outrageous. You don't normally see that. Right. But I'm going to quote again the quote from the movie, The Mothman Prophecies, where Richard Gere asks Indrid in the movie, what do you look like? And he says, well, it depends on who's looking.
3: Yeah. I just wanted to put all that out there to sort of frame the events that we've already discussed. And then we're gonna talk tonight about the culmination of things that began to affect John Keel personally, leading up to the tragic collapse of the Silver Bridge. So did you start a new lecture series at the Great Courses Plus yet?
2: Yes, and this one's on a subject we both love, the Vikings. Oh, my people. (laughs) Everybody's your people. But I did. I came to, if you look at my... Okay. okay. All right, whatever. I'm not a Viking.
3: No, but anyway, the Vikings are cool, not only because they had such a huge impact on the history and cultures of
2: Europe and Western Asia, but maybe even the United States too. Well, that's one controversial line of thinking. But what's cool is that archaeologists are continuously finding new evidence of their settlements in places previously thought that they hadn't reached. So if you really want to know the whole story of the Vikings and their astonishing impact on history, you got to check out this series called The Vikings at The Great Courses Plus. Yeah, You're just not going to get the depth of information from a documentary or an article
3: online as you're going to get from a whole course of lectures on a topic taught by the top professors in that
2: field. Documentaries and articles only have so much time and space to present their information. But with The Great Courses Plus, you get the bigger picture on a topic, especially the backstory and all of it with the accuracy, which we find crucial like the term viking itself. It comes from the Old Norse word "vik," meaning a small cove or fjord, right? Right. Typically, it would be a place where a band of pirates would hide out and lay in wait to rob a merchant ship. So to the Old Scandinavians, it specifically meant 'er ne'er-do-wells who would go out a Viking or out robbing and raiding. Then later, it generally was a name for any Scandinavians who went overseas. Yes, initially to raid and plunder, but later also to trade and establish settlements, and even become kings of foreign lands, like King Canute of Denmark, who conquered England in 1014-1016. This series has 36 lectures,
3: and each are only about 30 minutes long, so it's a really easy and entertaining way to find out more about a subject
2: you're interested in. Plus, you can take them with you wherever you go because you can watch these courses on any of your mobile devices or stream them on your TV at home. You can watch a few minutes of one lecture while you're waiting for something, then pick right up where you left off later on. It really makes learning convenient and fun. See what we mean by taking advantage of a special offer for our listeners. Get one whole month of free, unlimited access to any one of their over 500 courses and 6,000 lectures, with new ones being added all the time. That's right. Start
3: your month-long, unlimited, free trial membership now by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends.
0: Hi, I'm Jess Corbin from Australia, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. And now, back to the show.
3: One of the things that I love about John's book is, and I say John like I know him, I've never read him, (laughs) so I shouldn't do that. I don't know him. Well, he's a very
2: friendly guy, though.
3: Yes, he was. Um, But one of the things that I love about his book is that, investigatively, He was really quite sophisticated. He did a really good job of protecting his sources. He, as we mentioned in our earlier episodes, he didn't, when he heard a crazy story, he didn't share it because he didn't want to contaminate like a hoax pool. Well, exactly. That's really clever stuff to be doing, especially back then When nobody was really paying super close attention to this kind of thing.
2: Right. It's a little bit of a blind study. I try to isolate the sources, and again, so not to contribute to a feeling of mass hysteria in that narrow definition, to keep it isolated so he can get more genuine data. Exactly. He took like an empirical approach to gathering evidence
3: and conducting experiments. To that end, he actually took the four kids from the most detailed sighting of the Mothman, the one that we talked about, the four kids that were out in the car by the TNT plant, Roger and Linda Scarberry, Steve and Mary Millett, and then he also got his journalist friend, Mary Heyer, and her niece, Connie Carpenter, who was the one that saw the Mothman on the golf course in the daytime in Mason, West Virginia, and a few others, including, I think, Connie's husband, Keith, and Linda Scarberry's mom, Mabel,
2: her married name was Aker. So it was Keith Aker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A i k e r, I think.
3: Keel had assembled ten folks, and they all decided to go out there. When they got there, Connie and her husband Keith were the only two who would agree to go inside the abandoned building with Keel. Well,
2: especially for her. She was pretty traumatized.
3: Yeah, but he said that night she was pretty upbeat. I yeah. think she
2: had moved past it and... She feels that people have her back now. People don't yeah. believe her.
3: And he had a lot of experience. He says this in the book, exploring abandoned places and spooky things or whatever. Yeah. He was kind of used to it. Yeah, legend tripping. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever done any kind of urban exploration. I have. It's easy to get spooked. Well, you, it, you know. It, yeah, it and it's dangerous, on... by the way, kids. So, <laughs> no, don't... Like...
2: Yeah, don't do it. Often it's private property. So don't yeah. go trespassing. You're going to get hurt. And arrested.
3: Yeah. Do and you, arrested.
2: Would like you? like how do, upbeat you were oh, That's just an added bonus. <laughs> yeah. Because not only do you break your ankle on a faulty floorboard. Yeah, uh, then you get the mandatory
3: tetanus shot. Uh, yeah. And then, arrested.
2: And then, they, <laughs> and then the cops come. It's yeah. expensive. Yeah. Most of the time people do that and they don't get permission from the owners. That's true. Somebody usually owns that property or building, whether you think it's abandoned or not. Yeah. My question to you though, sir, is that you will not go to some place like Greyfriars, but would you go to a place that had repeated... UFO sightings,
3: yeah, just as long to check as they were out. far away, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I guess UFOs freaked me out less. Maybe that's because the things that I've learned from doing our show, I'd be more freaked out than I yeah. used we could Like the power of these orbs, which we've talked about. I'm going to talk a little bit more about. That never really scared me before, Yeah, but it is a little more
2: fright. The mental manipulation part of that is scary. I don't even mind that part, if it's for a little bit. I don't want the uh, actinic conjunctivitis. No. <laughs> I don't want any of these side effects, the bleeding ears. Yeah. Uh, well, that and
3: that's what we're going to talk about yeah. here, actually. It's funny yeah. you should mention that, because Connie and her husband Keith and Keel went into the building while everybody else waited outside a safe distance yeah. away. Like I said, Keel had noted that she was really upbeat, and they were creeping around inside the building, looking into old boilers, looking for the Mothman, and they saw nothing. They were just about to leave the building, and they were pretty much at that door where they were going to come back out to where everybody else was. And Connie took one last look back over her shoulder and screamed bloody murder. Those eyes, he's there, she yelled. Keel goes on to explain that her upbeat mood had gone now, in a matter of seconds, to abject terror. They rushed her outside and then Kiel ran back into the building, nerves of steel, while the larger group tried to calm Connie down. When Keel got back in there, he didn't see anything. He looked all around, couldn't see anything. He went back to the wall where she had seen the red eyes. He was examining it with his flashlight. There was nothing reflective on the wall that he felt she could have misconstrued as red eyes. So essentially he saw nothing. He comes back out to the group, and Mary Heyer, who was there, as I said earlier, said to John, quote, We thought we saw something back of the plant, a tall figure running. Was it you? And John replied, No, I was inside the whole time. I just came right back out to you. And then Linda Scarberry's mom said, What was that loud noise? And Keel hadn't heard this noise, but I guess she described, and they all described a loud, hollow, metallic noise that sounded like something metal falling possibly all the way from the top of the building. And then Mary looked at John and said she felt like the air had changed. They wanted to get out of there because there was an impressive feeling. And at that moment, they noticed that Mary Millette was bleeding from her ear, which is what you just mentioned a minute ago. In the movie, that happens to Will Patton. One of the things that I found from reading this book in so much detail and then looking at the movie and the adaptation and everything, it's really fascinating is... When I was watching the movie, because you and I both have experience in entertainment and we know a little bit about how it works behind the curtain, both in terms of production and writing, And because I'm married to a writer and you've done some writing and that sort of thing. and When I watched The Mothman Prophecies, I remember thinking, oh, I'm really enjoying this movie. What a crazy story, but I'm sure that part's made up and that's made up. There's no way that happened. And And then it turns out the more you read in the book, I kept thinking there were things that were added in for color. In the movie? In the movie. And they aren't. They yeah. are amalgamated, <laughs> for sure. Right, right. They put things like, like I said, Will Patton's character, who is a guy,
2: yeah.
3: he bleeds from the ear in the movie. Yes. Not Mary Millette. She's not really in the movie. Her character isn't in the movie. So they put all that stuff together. But I kept expecting to find out that, oh, well, I didn't see anything in the book about that. But yeah. especially the things that freaked me out the most in the movie, turns out they all have a root in the book.
2: Just maybe not to the person or a character in the movie. to the person, movie.
3: exactly. It's a different, because there's more people yeah, that well, it's yeah. happening to, and you can't yeah. talk about a hundred people in a
2: movie. No, so. but it's a creative way, though, to get these little incidents into one complete story, because then what you would have if you describe them as each individual seeing or experiencing these things, you would have the complaint that some folks have had about this podcast Yes, in that it's just a bunch of little anecdotes all over the place. There's no line through it. Well, in a movie, you need that. You need to follow the same characters. You can't have 100 characters right. experiencing all different things. You need maybe four or five characters yes. tied into one complete story. So I can understand them doing that. Otherwise, yeah, it would. then it's I, called a documentary.
3: I feel like the only significant event in the movie, a fatality that happened to a character that was, I couldn't find any parallel for that in the book. Uh, it wasn't from... Ah. Stop. Oh? No. Really? We're not going to spoil it. No, okay. we don't need to do that. All, All right. right. So now, <laughs> I want to read this little excerpt from Keel's book, actually, about right after they came out of the building. The whole group was now in a state bordering on sheer panic. I could see that their feelings were real. This was not just some kind of act being staged for my benefit. I'm no hero, but I did not share their fear. Miss Mallette's bleeding ear was a sign of concussion, meaning the air pressure had changed suddenly. Connie apparently had had an hallucinatory or psychic glimpse of those frightening eyes. The metallic clang could not have come from inside the building, or I would have heard it too. It may have been associated with the sudden change in air pressure. I scanned the black skies. There was not a star, not a light visible. All right, so let's talk about this a little bit. Yeah. I love that he suggests that maybe she had a hallucination or something. Or a premonition, yeah. a psychic glimpse. And that seems to come up a lot with the Mothman.
2: Yeah. An T- impression he's, he's making in your mind. He's tapped into your head. Or right. what this sounds like is possibly an after effect of just these other beings' operations. And it's unfortunate, but that's what's going to happen. It's kind of like whales not faring well with this uh, deep water sonar and research that the Navy conducts, they're saying it's harmful to them, it screws up their communications. Who knows how they feel about it? Maybe it gives them a headache or a feeling of oppression and bad vibes and they have to get out of the area. So there you have us, human beings, more advanced form of creature. Can can I just interrupt for a quick little tangent? Yeah. Since you said that.
3: Yeah. Have you heard about this thing in Canada with the sound under the water? It scared all the-
2: I did see, yeah. And then nobody knows what it is. I saw the headlines, but you know, there's plenty of sounds, the deep sea, sounds that happen and people think it's maybe just an iceberg scraping the Yeah, but this is bottom. a ping. This is some kind of ping. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff, Scott. But they're saying yeah. it
3: sounds mechanical. And no. it's pinging and, it's, and the fishermen are upset. The Inuit, I believe, who are fishing area are upset because everything it's chasing that they the catch is, is gone. And there was a thing a few years ago with the Navy, the U.S. Navy had been wanting to use what you were talking about, and it got banned. It went to court, and so they're supposedly not using it. And so now the Canadian military, I guess, is exploring to try to find out what's going on at the bottom of the...
2: The feeling, though, that it is of terrestrial nature, right? It is something explainable, or they don't know, just nobody knows anything.
3: Nobody knows. Okay. There has not been an acknowledgement that it might be terrestrial. USOs?
2: that's what I'm wondering. I'm just <laughs> saying who knows.
3: Or the navy went ahead and did what they weren't supposed to do anyway, which is entirely possible, but Yeah. that's but you wouldn't something think, else. And it, I guess the locals, the Inuit's are distrustful of Greenpeace? I heard oh, really? PR that's pretty interesting. Greenpeace used to try to scare away seals because of the seal uh, clubbing thing. Yes. And but Greenpeace said, we don't do that anymore. We support the Inuit because they're, what they do is sustainable and that sort of thing, and it's not us. Well, it's so, a conflict
2: of uh, interests there. Yeah. So I don't know
3: what's going yeah. on there. That's a tangent. It's one of our patented tangents. We can <laughs> patented, come back and we yeah. can get back on course here. Yeah, Patent. No, but
2: but the point is the same, though. Whatever's going on, eh, who knows? From another planet, interdimensional, whatever that is, may not be directed towards us. It's just a weird mechanical, industrial, on their level, side effect. Right. You don't stare into an arc welder's spark, you know. I always do, unfortunately. Don't do that. <laughs> don't don't I can't stare help it. into the sun.
3: Yeah, no, that that's, I don't do.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because you end up with these similar conditions, but there are occupational things along with infrasound. Yes, there are physical things that happen. We just don't know the origin, but there are
3: real physical effects. Well, and that's the thing. Whether Connie was hallucinating about the eyes, right? The whole group heard the sound. And several in the group saw something running in the woods behind the building. Yeah. Now, the deputy, Keel asked the deputy about, did you see something? And he was just like, yeah, I don't know, maybe it was a deer or something. Right. So right. you've got these different perspectives. And then on top of that, Mary Millette's ear is bleeding. Yeah. So we're having physical side effects to whatever took place in those moments. The bleeding ear and the loud sound, those are not hallucinations. Those are things that are happening although the loud sound i guess theoretically that could be a hallucination if it well it's a group a it's a group hallucination but this hallucination. is a group yeah, yeah and group hallucinations don't happen so there's some I d- be debate careful. well I no made a, i made a, I made a, <laughs> a
2: generalization uh, yeah i made a generalization no i would say that they don't happen exactly like this i don't know how you can chime in a group of people certainly you can introduce a foreign phenomenon or stimulus i would say to a group of people and some of them will feel the same thing not all of them but we talked about this again with infrasound they've conducted this experiment On a group. You know, there's a loud bang at the same time that people hear. Right. It's kind of like, well, remember we talked about this before, you hearing the loud train or something crashing in the the hotel room there at the old Monte Vista. Yeah. And I didn't hear anything, but that's going on inside your head.
3: Yeah, well, that's exploding head syndrome, which I have.
2: Right. But now if I had it also at the same
3: time. That would have been real wacky. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, if, especially if nothing had fallen, you know what I'm yes, saying? Because yeah. you have all these factors. Now that doesn't make sense to me because we can't have the same exact phenomenon unless something's manipulating us from outside. And here's the other thing too. When Keel talked about
3: how Connie was in a state of abject terror. But she
2: wasn't going in. That's why I asked you that. She no, seemed, she wasn't. She, she was fine yeah, going she in. Was so fine. Something
3: overcame her. They right. were just about out of the building. She could have come out and been like, oh. It was like it wanted her to know. Yeah. It was there and it knew she was there.
2: Right. And or it was trying to get away, like, oh, I'm sorry you saw me. I yeah. have to split now.
3: Well, and this feeling of terror that's gonna come up again later, that reminded me of what Terry and Gwen Sherman went through at Skinwalker Ranch whenever they those orbs got near them. And Absolutely. This, something's gonna come up here in a minute that we're gonna discuss with yeah. Keel too, of this feeling of
2: abject fear beyond
3: fight or flight, total paralyzation
2: of just we hear this all the time when people describe to us uh, or they email us their stories about bedroom encounters with strange beings, shadow people. It's indescribable and I don't think that people, you know, people who are quick to dismiss that or is, you just saw a shadow, you know, you just saw the curtains flapping in the moonlight. You can't even relay and they cannot understand or feel what kind of deep down to the core primal terror these people are experiencing. All right. So Keel got everybody back home. And then, because I said
3: Nerves of Steel, I'd like to say something beside <laughs> Nerves, but we have <laughs> we have kids that listen to our yeah, show. I see. <laughs> yes. uh, nerves of Steel, uh, Mr. Keel parted ways with the scared group and went back to the TNT area alone. It must be eleven or midnight at this point. I'm not sure. Right. If they he started at nine. Yeah so he's driving down one of the many deserted backroads in the area when he was suddenly overcome with a sense of bone chilling fear he pulled over turned around and drove slowly back to the spot where he felt that feeling and lo and behold it happened again he writes that the hair on the back of his neck stood up he turned the car around yet again and headed back trying to figure out the exact spot by memorizing certain trees and fence posts. And the fear overtook him again. Now, it was pitch black. The moon wasn't out. and He said it was very, very hard to see anything. So now he pulls the car over, parks it, gets out. Nerves of steel. He notices that there's not a single wildlife sound of any kind. No birds, no insects, no nothing. Now, I know that we have a lot of listeners that are from that part of the country, I myself grew up a large part of my life in North Carolina. It's not quiet at night. <laughs> well, lots, <laughs> yeah, lots of uh, crickets, All kinds cicadas of, oh, sometimes. God, I love cicadas. Some yeah. people hate them, but I love cicadas. Yeah. I miss not hearing big, them. Big out. red eyes.
2: Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. But they don't glow. You don't see cicada eyes. You only see no. them like- well, No. That was our earlier point. They're not yeah. giant bicycle reflectors.
3: Yeah. Giving you conjunctivitis. But anyway- <laughs> He gets out and he can hear nothing and he decides he's gonna walk back down the road towards the spot. He's doing fine, he's walking, and then he just, he took this one step too far and the feeling came over him like a ton of bricks. It was palpable. He said he was petrified as he continued to walk through it. The terror was so great that when he got to the other side of it, Even though his car was now back on the opposite side of whatever this zone of fear was, a short distance away, he actually contemplated staying where he was until the sun came up rather than walk back through the zone to get to his car. That's how frightened he had gotten. So eventually, he screwed up the nerve to walk back through it. And like clockwork, the terror returned. Keel came to the conclusion that he must have been passing through some sort of ultrasonic zone of fear that was finite in its boundaries. He went back in the daytime to the same spot looking for any plausible culprit, power lines, transformers, microwave towers, there was nothing. And to add to that, the feeling was gone in the same spot in the daytime. All right, Forrest, so what do you think about that? What do you think that could have been? He didn't see an orb, he didn't see a UFO, he didn't see anything, but he did say that this particular instance was something that, because it happened kind of early on in his investigation, was something that convinced him that there was a lot more going on in Point Pleasant than people thought.
2: It's a ray gun that shoots fear. (laughs) That's (laughs) what it is. Yeah. Or a machine that generates it just as a byproduct. Right. From hearing about all that, it's some kind of process. Does not sound supernatural, because that's another thing. Maybe... If Again, if you believe any of this and you go down that road of shadow beings and ghosts terrorizing people and demons, scaring people to their very core, uh, maybe they're employing some of these physiological... Maybe he's walking through Patrick Swayze's ghost. <laughs> Paradises. Was that scary? Was it Whoopi Goldberg? Who's the? No, she's the medium, right? Yeah, she's the medium, telling uh, Demi Moore. But did yeah. Demi Moore feel this kind of fear? No, actually, I don't think she. Did. She felt the warmth. Yeah. Oh, the hands massaging her, right as she's doing yeah. pottery. Okay, yeah. it's a love story. It's not going to be yeah, an abject know. terror story. I don't need to remember that soon. I see, but uh, <laughs> no. The point is that he's defined this area, the zone, as he calls it which is really interesting from a scientific standpoint because you can step into it you can step out of it. Now, yeah. if you think about it, we have somewhat similar technology that they are developing for crowd dispersal, the government, where they can point a microwave beam at you. And how it's described is that it's a really, really intense heat right, at the spot where they're aiming this at you. And what you want to do is immediately get out of the way. Yeah, That's what works great for crowd dispersal, where it's non-lethal. You immediately want to leave the area... As as quickly as possible, because you cannot stand it. So That's That's like McDonald's uh, chairs. They're designed to make you uncomfortable after
3: (laughs) about 10 minutes.
2: Eat your dang happy (laughs) meal, get the hell out. That's kind of, yes, we don't charge very much for this, but we want you to eat it and get out so we can turn this over. We make it up in volume. Yes. I actually sampled and experienced a new technology. Well, geez, even now, this would be like maybe uh, 10 years ago, that a company, a vendor had come in wanting us to use it for uh, some of the the large corporate events I, I sometimes worked on where it was a directed beam of audio, of sound. It was a speaker. Oh, right. It was a flat panel speaker. And that was interesting. It wasn't a cone, it wasn't a beam, it was not a ray gun. It was just a flat panel that was actually a speaker, but it was highly directional, which means the zone of sound could be five or six inches wide. You think like, it's yeah, it's kind of a gimmick. The other thing, weird thing is that you could bounce it off walls, like a laser beam onto somebody's head. They'd be the only person to hear the audio coming out of the speaker. So what's interesting is that, at a large convention or crowd, say like you're down, you know, you're at the convention center for Comic-Con, let's say, and you want to advertise your specific product, you can point it at somebody in the crowd and freak them out Yeah, it's like, Thor is listening to you, my right. friend. <laughs> Buy my new comic. It's like, what? You know, you don't know where it's coming from. Uh, and so it, in, in that way, it's kind of a really interesting technology because the people next to you won't even hear it, just right. you. And that's nothing special or or mystical about it. There's nothing paranormal about it. It's just a control of sound waves. The other application is that it's good for sometimes submarines. You're in a large metal tube, it's very noisy. People are hearing different commands. Different stations are hearing different commands, which may conflict with the station next to them. So instead of everybody having to wear headphones so that they can only hear the channel they're supposed to hear, you would have a speaker above you. So you're only hearing the commands and instructions that you're supposed to hear, the person next to you isn't getting confused, and they're they're not getting flooded with noise pollution. I feel like that might be classified information. No, the guy told <laughs> us. I know it wasn't. It was being tested at the moment. So you can control different stimuli, I guess, in a very general sense, in a very directed area. So when you take a look at him going to this little area, fear, no fear, fear, no fear, you're just stepping in and out. Right. It's uh, In the middle of the night. In in the middle of nowhere. Well, that also adds to the fear, of course. You know what I'm saying? It it adds to the spookiness. But this guy's been around the block. He's not shaken up much. But I believe that it is some kind of byproduct. I'm not sure if it was directed at him, but who knows? I don't know, certainly. Well, it could be a warning, though. Well, like, it
3: could, I think of almost like a, well, a sentry again, or something like, to well, scare like, you from going down the road and yeah, get you to turn around and go back.
2: Exactly. That's my point about the crowd control. Leave the square now. Yeah. Go home.
3: And we mentioned this in an older episode. We did, and you mentioned it a few minutes ago, we did talk about infrasound because... Keel talks about, he calls it ultrasonic in his book. Now, yeah. this is 1975 or Yeah, whatever. a little bit
2: before uh, a lot of the study.
3: Yeah, but he talked about how he felt that this ultrasonic sound could engender a feeling of fear. He himself was ascribing a technology reason yeah. to what he thought was happening. We mentioned this experiment that happened in uh, September of 2003, but I just want to read this article real quick uh, again. This is an AP article. Mysteriously snuffed out candles, weird sensations, and shivers down the spine may not be due to the presence of ghosts in haunted houses, but to very low frequency sound that is inaudible to humans. British scientists have shown in a controlled experiment that the extreme bass sound, known as infrasound, produces a range of bizarre effects in people including anxiety, extreme sorrow, and chills, supporting popular suggestions of a link between infrasound and strange sensations. Normally, you can't hear it, Richard Lord, an acoustic scientist at the National Physical Laboratory in England, who worked on the project, said Monday. Lord and his colleagues, who produced infrasound with 23-foot pipe and tested its impact on 750 people at a concert, said infrasound is also generated by natural phenomena. Quote, some scientists have suggested that this level of sound may be present at some allegedly haunted sites and so cause people to have odd sensations that they attribute to a ghost. Our findings support these ideas, end quote, said Professor Richard Wiseman, a psychologist at the University of Hertfordshire in southern England. Lord and Weissman played four contemporary pieces of live music, including some laced with infrasound at a London concert hall, and asked the audience to describe their reactions to the music. The audience did not know which pieces included infrasound, but 22% reported more unusual experiences when it was present in the music. Their unusual experiences included feeling uneasy or sorrowful, getting chills down the spine, or nervous feelings of revulsion or fear. Quote, these results suggest that low frequency sound can cause people to have unusual experiences even though they cannot consciously detect infrasound, said Wiseman, who presented his findings to the British Association Science Conference. In terms of natural phenomena, infrasound is also produced by storms, seasonal winds, and weather patterns and some types of earthquakes. Animals such as elephants also use infrasound to communicate over long distances or as weapons to repel foes. All right, again, so that was 2003. Right. It's amazing to me that Kiel had some sort of knowledge of this idea in 1975.
2: Well, he was trying to quantify the experience that he had witnessed himself. But of course, the phenomenon has happened ever since <laughs> this earth was around. Yeah. Because sometimes it can be wind going through trees or power lines. It's a kind of a low vibration. People have often, you know, said about uh, the Diatlov Pass incident. Well, it was probably just infrasound, including Donnie Icar. Yeah. Look at that video, because he, as he's saying it, he just kind of looks off. <laughs> it's just yeah, so telling. Not like, he's like, yeah. like not, 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 you know, casting any aspersions on, on all that. My, no, no, My no. point being is just that... Just doing what your publisher tells you to well, do. Well, maybe so. <laughs> but people, you know, they say like, well, maybe it was whistling through the trees. But it's like, well, no, there are specific... Geographical and geological instances that have to happen before that infrasound can occur. So they're on the slope of a mountain, kind of open. Now, if they were in a canyon, okay, I yeah. I totally believe that much more. If they were in a copse of trees, as Scott likes to say, a copse. You know, depending on. I took on, that <laughs> from George Knapp. So I can't, right, technically exactly. I,
3: I knew the word, but I can't take credit for it becoming yes. part of my
2: personal zeitgeist. No. <laughs> <laughs> just another fun word we like to say, yeah. depending on how the, the trees are growing and how they're, closely they are situated to each other and how the wind is coming through them, that can produce in for a sound. Well, wasn't there a story about an air conditioning unit or something that was
3: rumbling and making people sick? That, that, that? is,
2: yeah, no, that is the uh, original story where, not remembering the names, but it led to the first study and I think paper or report on it where...
3: Don't hold us to
2: the details Who here. are you telling that? Our, our everybody. Editor? Oh, you're telling, you're telling that to
3: everybody. <laughs> I'm telling the listeners. Just do it, just do no, it. this, is, a, do this it. is the it's story.
2: Okay. There's a guy who was a... Uh, <laughs> a guy who worked in a basement yeah. at a, uh, a research facility or university, and his hobby was fencing. So he had, right. he was working on his foil, which is your sword, which is a very thin, flexible blade. So you don't actually stab anybody. If you jab him with it; it's going to bend. So he has a vice. He starts noticing this thing is like vibrating wildly. He's a scientist. He's a uh, skeptical man by nature. He's like, okay, what's causing this? This is not right. There's no ghost. I don't see any... Uh, person with a bed sheet and holes cut out. There's nothing ghost-like. That's not where his mind went first. He's like, okay, that's very strange. I can see it. I can feel this kind of um, maybe some uneasiness. But he then took to finding out exactly what was causing it. And they found it was, yeah, it's the air ducts in a uh, AC exchange above. So there's hot and cold air running through it, air conditioning. And when the joints aren't fitting properly, you get a little vibration like a whistle or a flute. It was the air passing through these ducts that was causing An infrasound scenario right there in that room, and what it is is like, yeah, you're now at the um, confluence of these sine waves. You're hitting a peak, like waves. You you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So it's it's constructive interference. Very good, yeah. Yeah, But what it is (laughs) is, but it is, it is an amplified effect. So you're, you know, we all may experience a little bit of it in an old building where the pipes aren't fitting very well you may not get all those experiences like a feeling of dread but he noticed that like well whatever it is it's really at this point in the room where the sword was clamped down he's getting a hot spot of this that's why it was vibrating so wildly this is like a human dog whistle of fear a little bit yeah no no <laughs> but you know what yeah.
3: let's talk about it. you know what's interesting about this the mythbusters took a look at this and i didn't know that until today i looked it up uh, mythbusters episode 193 which aired on October 28th as part of a Halloween special, 2012, before they went off the air, God rest that show's soul, Mm. they took a look at infrasound as fear-inducing. They went out to four abandoned cabins in the woods, and they filled one of them with this imperceptible infrasound, and then they had 10 people spend three minutes in each cabin. They told their volunteers that something bad had happened in each one of the cabins, and they intentionally picked, I watched this segment, by the yeah, way, right. they intentionally picked a place that was run down, but not so creepy that they would be yeah. automatically creeped. Mm. You know, just, just it, abandoned. It, was, it was a resort that hadn't been, no one had used in like 15 yeah. years with little cabins. So the third cabin of the four had a 40,000 watt sound system by a company I believe is called Meyer Sound, which was playing an inaudible 19 Hertz tone. That's below the range of yes. human hearing. Mm-hmm. So out of the 10 volunteers that went into these cabins, only two indicated that cabin number three made them feel uneasy. The Mythbusters declared infrasound as a fear-inducing element as busted based on that statistic. However, I want to say one thing before you jump in here. Ah. I didn't put this together when I was putting our outline together. That's 20%. It's exactly the same number that they gave in 2003. Absolutely. It's so it's two out of 10 people. For me, it's not necessarily busted. It's just a low quantity of people are reacting to it. Mythbusters are saying, this is statistically insignificant, but I think this might not necessarily be a case of statistical insignificance as much as a sensitivity that not
2: everybody has. Well, exactly. Now, if you take in those two people that felt that and you got another eight who are physiologically... Exactly the same. Well, then you get 100%, wouldn't you? Right. Maybe. That's the know. theory. Yeah. And, you know, they always got pushback on how they did. You know, people would oh, always write and be selected. like, you did this all wrong. <laughs> you, you know, which I'm not,
3: I'm not getting on that train because no, I love that show. But, but the I,
2: concert, that's why, I, was there 700 people? It was a large amount of people. Yeah. And again, scientifically, yes, you want the greatest number of, of samplings from your control group there to test on. And so when you get something, though, that's about the same, percent, yep, 750 people. Okay. So I went back and looked. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So going back to Diatla because that was abject sheer terror enough that you made experienced hikers and outdoors people run half naked out into the snow where they knew that would kill them. That alone will kill them, that exposure. That's not what killed them, though. My point is, yeah. what, they all experienced that high, high level oh, of sheer Oh, terror. I see
3: what you're saying. This is a really good point. This is a good follow-up Well, that was my original point with, oh, the, with the whole thing, is that— What a revelation, well, Forrest. Well, That's just, very interesting. You didn't hear that
2: the first time we no, did
3: the story. No, but no, no, I guess <laughs> yeah. maybe I did, but we've got two experiments here by right. two different parties right. showing that only 20% of people can even perceive it. Yeah. Then there's no way that 100% of the Dyatlov kids— would have reacted to infrasound.
2: You could say like, well, you know, out of a thousand people and 20% of those, if you take now a a larger number of people, the 20%, and they all happen to go on the same hiking trip, then they're going to have that same experience or feel the same effects. My point is, that is way, way, way too high for natural infrasound. Infrasound goes on all over the world. I read a story, you know, years ago about a university team experimenting with very low frequency sound. And this... Totally might be false. You maybe not even find this on the internet anywhere, even right. as a joke. But, right. but I'd heard, I'd read this article that the university team had basically constructed something that was like a giant referee whistle, it had taken a wind machine, blown air through it. So you get this yeah. very low frequency sound. And the effect was everybody around it immediately fell over and started vomiting. Oh, totally right. incapacitating. Yeah. Now I believe that effect, that's possible. I believe that something that big and low and loud could have that effect on a great number of people around. Yeah. That's There were definitely <laughs> dudes in my high school that had car stereos that, that Oh yeah, that made yeah. Me a little nauseous. No, people would do <laughs> yeah, well, people No, they do that at concerts you like bounce some, the quarter on the roof if you yeah, yeah, you could right, you could see it you could see it vibrating. You know, people want to sit on the speakers at a concert. Some people do. Yeah. Not everybody find that's enjoyable, but there's other guy that looks the thump in his chest. So yeah. That guy's crazy. Uh, Yeah, it's crazy, but again, it doesn't affect everybody. So the point is that just the odds, maybe we'll get cogs here to figure out the math on this, Yeah. but the fact that all these people at Dyatlov who all were prone to this all went on the same camping trip just by accident and all had a very extremely high level of sheer terror and panic at the very same time experienced that, I would just guess that that's not possible. So if you talk to Kiel, in, in Kiel's situation... It's like being at the four corners. Like um, I'm in Arizona, I'm yeah. in Utah, I'm in yeah. Arizona, Utah. You're jumping back and forth. It's very delineated. Then that tells me that it's more, I guess, mechanical in a way. Or there's something creating this. It's not a natural Elzono, you know, freak outo. It's not, it's right. not a, an exact beam that's happening naturally. So that's just my assessment of what John Keel was experiencing. That just very narrow directed sensation. Just out of curiosity, is there a com website lurking out there somewhere on the interwebs? Uh, yeah, actually, I did register
3: that domain name, but I never had the time to learn how to develop it the way I wanted
2: Yeah, me too. Look, I've got a couple of domain names, and now they're just sitting there for years as one of millions of site under construction pages. Well, obviously, we're not the only ones to have a placeholder parked on the internet for years with no hope of ever becoming anything. But now there's a solution.
3: And that solution is Squarespace. Squarespace is the all in one solution for starting from nothing to having a beautiful website that works for you the moment you publish. With Squarespace, you can register a domain name and extension, choose from hundreds of designer templates to create your own look. Pick the functions you want your site to have, and then you're ready to showcase your work, promote your business, and sell your products,
2: or just have fun with your own online presence. You don't have to read a bunch of books or take expensive courses to become a webmaster, because not only do they make creating a website as easy and quick as possible, Squarespace is there for you 24-7 with their award-winning customer support. Whether it's e-commerce functionality with analytics and built-in search engine optimization, or you just want something that looks cool for your blog, Squarespace is the answer.
3: And now you can check out everything Squarespace has to offer with a free trial just by going to Squarespace.com. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code LEGENDS to save 10%. Squarespace,
2: make it beautiful. Hi, I'm Adam, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show.
3: Well, here's the other thing about the Mythbusters episode. At the top of the episode when they were setting things up, Jamie was testing things out and he was sitting in that cabin, the third cabin, which he knew of course was playing the 19 Hertz tone. When they first turned it on, it was rattling the windows and everything. So they had to do all this kind of mixing and adjusting to make it completely inaudible. yeah, So that things weren't rattling, whether you could hear or not. And they did that. And then Jamie was sitting in the chair in there before they were gonna do the experiment. And he said, you know, he didn't have a feeling of fear, but he definitely had a feeling of anxiety
1: feels like I have butterflies in my stomach, or I'm really tired, but I've had too much coffee. It's, it's sort of anxiety-producing. I don't know about fear, but it's unnerving.
3: So, ah. I guess he's one of the two out of ten. I thought when he said that, and of course, that's why the editors put it in there, it makes the show more interesting. You think everybody's going to hear it, but he acknowledged that even though they busted that myth. Yeah. So anyway,
2: I just thought that was interesting. Well, no, it's again, yeah, but not to the extreme level where he's like, I could get out of here. You know, again, goes to Mr. Chicken, Don Knotts, he does a crazy scream and runs out of there. What have you taken the parameters of this test? and crank them up to the unhealthy levels. Like I said about the referee's whistle. What if you took a 100,000 watt sound system and played a five hertz tone? Now I'm, this, yeah. I'm totally talking uh, um, Yeah. When Yeah, uh, when of does schoolers. it start
3: of affecting?
2: Yeah, when do you start bleeding from your eyes and ears and yeah. every other orifice? I'd heard that elephants can hear or sense down to five hertz a tone, and that's how they communicate. They can rumble so low and they feel vibrations in the ground. It's part of their communication system. So we're not that size, though, and they can handle it. Right. We cannot. So what I'm wondering is, you know, (laughs) what if you just crank these things up? What if you can get the feeling up to those kinds of levels where you feel like you have to run out of there for your life? All right, just a quick aside here. I have always been a huge fan of
3: Mythbusters. My son loves it. We have so much fun watching it together, even in reruns now. In fact, I think I was pretty much giddy when Carrie Byron started tweeting at us about the (laughs) Shadow People episode. That's right. Sent her a bunch of t-shirts. Also, I did want to mention something else. I actually went to Comic-Con in 2015 with my wife. Yeah, she... Oh, that's right. I picked you up. Yes, you did. My wife was a voice on a Hulu series called The Awesomes that uh, Seth Meyers produced and created. And so we went down there cuz she was on a panel. When we were there, I had tried really bad to see Adam Savage. And I just missed him because I at conventions where there's lots and lots of people, I'm not the best with managing my time. You're I had like miscalculated, yeah, when he was going to be there and I got to the little booth and he wasn't there. So I was sad to miss him, but I did notice that he was tweeting. He had had a party probably for industry people or something. And at this party, he had some stuff there that he had brought on the road with him, including the very rare Sankara Stones from Indiana Jones. No. Which he owns. Yeah. The original in the filming. Yeah. Yeah. And he had them there in a case and one of them got stolen at this party sometime after 9.45 PM, I think on July 12th of 2015. And he had gone on and was tweeting about it, and I just feel really bad for him. And I just wanted to say, in the spirit of how that worked out, if you, listening to this show, or anyone you know, has any idea where Adam Savage's Sankara Stone is, he has a no-questions-asked return policy on it. So I wanted to say, and we wanted to do this because I'm such a fan of the show, anyone who might have it or can get this information to the person who does have it can send it to us, and we'll get it back to Adam. Again, no questions asked. Our shipping address, as of now, is 4804 Laurel Canyon Boulevard, number 205, Los Angeles, California, 91607. If you're listening to this show more than a year after it was released, please check our contact details at our website to confirm our most current shipping address. Well, I got
2: one thing to add here. May the dastardly nerd who took it feel the wrath of Kalima. Nice. Okay. By I grab Thar's hammer. <laughs> I just outnerded you right there. Oh, thank you. But uh, <laughs> no, I would also probably check eBay.
3: Uh, yeah. Well, Jackass hey, took it. We should put it to the Ark to see if they can find it. Well, it's... It's so sitting, hard to sell a stolen item like
2: that. Yeah, even to, to fake it, it's probably sitting in his little figurine collection, or I doubt it's like sitting on the cubicle wall of his graphic design shop.
3: Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Moving on, let's get back on topic here. Uh, Good luck with that, Adam. Hope you find it. Uh, I, I was tweeting with him a few days ago. He did confirm that he still doesn't have it back. All right, so now I want to talk a little bit about the things that happened to John Keel leading up to the collapse of the bridge there were events that seemed to belie some sort of omniscient presence that knew every choice that he was going to make before he made it. And this is the part of the book that really, really blew my mind. And sometimes it seemed like whatever was messing with him had an ability to see the future, and it knew everything about him, even things that he didn't know about himself. A lot of this did make it into the movie in a fascinating way. But firstly, I want to take a look at another sighting that demonstrates how this kind of stuff was happening to him. NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, calls 1967 the mother of all sighting waves. We actually have a link to NICAP sightings from 1967. It's the full report. It is astronomical how many UFOs were popping up, not just in Point Pleasant, all over the United States and all over the world in 1967, specifically. Mm. In this story, which was from Keel's book, in January of 1967, a man named Tad Jones was driving down Route 64 in Dunbar, West Virginia. Now, Dunbar is about 49 miles south-southeast of Point Pleasant, and Route 64 was brand new at the time. In fact, it had just been completed. They were probably still painting the stripes on it. And Tad came upon a huge vehicle blocking the road. He thought it was a construction truck, and he slowed down. And then as he got closer to it, he realized it was floating in midair about four feet off the ground. He said it was a metallic metal sphere about 20 to 25 feet in diameter and that it had, get this, according to Keel, four legs attached to it that all had wheels at the bottom of them that looked like caster wheels. There are other reports that say it had only two legs and that also say it had two antennas sticking up on top of it. Now, the wheels would be the ones like you would see on the bottom of a gurney at the hospital in the movie Jacob's Ladder, which is a horrific image. Flipping, flipping yeah. back and forth. Yeah. Or a grocery cart. Um, also scary. <laughs> yeah. But Tad Jones said there was also a small window on it, about nine inches in diameter, but he couldn't see anything inside. And here we go again with, like, <laughs> with the 50s yeah, tech. Yeah. At the bottom was a propeller of some kind yeah. that seemed to be idling when he first pulled up. But then when he got to about within 10 feet of it, The propeller revved up, and this thing rose up into the sky and disappeared. So, Tad went on to his appliance store. However, he was freaked out enough that he reported the incident to the cops, and it did make its way into the papers. Here's actually a really interesting article in the Beckley Post-Herald from Beckley, West Virginia, Friday morning, January 20th, 1967, with an interview with Tad Jones about what he saw that day. I sighted this object quite a distance from the road, and thought it must be state road commission equipment. I couldn't drive around it because it was about 20 feet in diameter and blocked the westbound driving lanes. I got out of my truck, walked up, and looked it over, Jones said. It was hovering above the roadway, about three or four feet. It had four wheels, and on the bottom of the ball was a propeller-like apparatus, which was revolving noiselessly. At the top was a round window with two antennae. In the middle of the object... Was a protruding flange or seam, which indicated to me that it had been connected together in some way. It was aluminum in color. I looked up at the window, but didn't see anyone. I stood there a minute, and then it gently rose, and without any exhaust, or odor, or any noise whatsoever, it went straight up. I watched it for what must have been a minute or a minute and a half until it passed from sight. I was amazed. It was some time before I got back in my truck and went to work. And quite a bit later, before I decided I'd better report this to the Guthrie Air Force Base radar force. Right, so there it is in his own words. No noise, no exhaust. Right. It sounds like a balloon a little bit to me. Oh, but oh well, it, you're
2: going back to the uh, Bigelow Aerospace designs. Yeah. The, the strange stealthy balloons.
3: Anyway, so that's the article. On the surface, that's just another sighting story. Right. Here's the thing that's different about it. A few days after Tad's sighting, an issue of True Magazine hit the stands with an article in it that John Keel had written. True Magazine was printed from 1937 to 74, and it changed a lot over the years. Originally, it was called like True Magazine for Men or something. Yeah. It was all outdoorsy. Yeah. But then there was another editor that took over, I think, in the 50s who was super UFO-y. <laughs> well,
2: no, no. after 40, 1947, this, this got really popular. Yeah, exactly. Still for kids and sci-fi, you know, buffs, but mostly it's kid stuff. But John was a contributor, you know, I'm sure he was sending in these oh, great sure. stories. Yeah. And so he had
3: sent in a freelance article to contribute to True Magazine. And this particular issue came out just a few days after Tad's sighting in Dunbar. The article had a ton of illustrations in it. It was all about UFOs, and there were all kinds of objects. A lot of them had been completely made up by the illustrator, who Kiel had had no contact with. Yeah. There was, however, one craft in the article that stood out to Kiel. He himself had not seen it until the issue was published. It was a metallic sphere with wheeled legs and a propeller. The artist had exactly drawn what Tad Jones saw just a few days before the magazine was published only the magazine was well into production when Tad's sighting happened the layouts that the illustrator had done were baked in weeks earlier now this wouldn't be all that surprising if it was just another saucer with a dome on top of it or a cigar what everyone always talks about cigars and saucers and discs but a craft of this particular type had never been described in an encounter before according to Keel. And he says, or since in his book, although that book was published in 1975. So to summarize, just to get the big picture here about why this is so weird, Tad Jones saw a craft that had already been drawn by an artist for a publication that had not yet been released and an accompanying article that John Keel had written. With this, there's an implication of precognition on the part of the event itself or the suggestion of the manipulation of time, specifically with a desire to mess with John Keel. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Are you saying that this guy saw something or was made to see something and that that would get back to Kiel and that was planned? Yes. Ooh.
3: That's what I'm saying and I'm saying that that's what Kiel seemed to believe. There's, that was his feeling. Yeah. That's
2: when he was starting to unravel a little bit. Why is the machinations of all this happening specifically to freak me out? Right. Casey talks about this, the spiritus mundi, the band of thought that encircles the earth. Why did Da Vinci come up with flying machines and uh, flamethrowers and things that had no practical engineering capability at the time? Yet he was coming up with ideas that seemed far ahead of his time. Yeah, and really, in the band of thought, is there any time or space? It's all one long now. So this guy's pulling something. But you know, we've talked about this before—the the psychic connection between. Things that happened, uh, natural phenomenon that happened, or unnatural phenomenon that happens, and people's thoughts. Especially people that are directing their thoughts towards the phenomenon. Here's the other thing about this particular
3: craft, and Tad Jones, by the way. He owned an appliance store. This thing (laughs) sounds like an appliance. If you swim into an appliance man at this time and said... What do you think a ufo looks like that's yeah. this thing it's got a propeller on the bottom and wheels and like that goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of the show it's yeah. like he's seeing what works for him however it has this added dimension to it now or some illustrator that this guy's never met never known had no idea had drawn this thing before he saw it yeah. so it was drawn for this magazine keel hadn't seen it the witness hadn't seen it then it appears in front of the witness and then Kiel picks up the magazine to yeah. check probably and see if there's any misprints in his article. And he looks down and sees a picture of the UFO that the witness outside of Point Pleasant saw just a few days earlier. Exactly. That was drawn before he saw it. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and these are the things when people say, the Mothman, man, that movie doesn't cover anything. And you're right. This stuff is not in the movie. These are when people are like, what's the rest
2: of the story? Why is yeah. it so intriguing? And this is one of those things that's just like, this is, it's crazy. It's a glimpse into the other side of which we cannot understand. What that reminds me of, back in the day when TV was kind of new and fresh and novel, do you remember this? When you either had a giant cabinet, that's how TVs first arrived, is that it was a piece of furniture. So a lot of homes would have a giant TV, and sometimes there'd be a, a hi-fi stereo attached to that part oh, yeah. next of it. We still have one. Yes, but it was, Emily th- it was a one. 300-pound piece yeah. of wood that had the TV <laughs> in one side. Yeah. Or it was a TV by itself. And then what you started to see in the late 60s, early 70s, was that TVs were getting smaller. People weren't going for the giant cabinet type sets, unless you were kind of wealthy, like Magnavox made it, you know, a giant piece when they had speakers built in. That's exactly what we have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We have Emily grew up watching
3: Saturday Night Live on it. She always wanted to work on Saturday Night Live, which eventually she did. Yeah. And so we still have that TV. You have the giant
2: cabinet TV.
3: Yes. Wow. I mean, it's in storage, but yes. Right,
2: right. Yeah. Well... You did, it's a Magnavox. But it's impractical. It's meant to stay in a room and not move. Now, what you saw as TVs were getting smaller, like I said, in the late 60s, early 70s and onward, is that TVs were getting smaller. You wanted to be able to wheel that closer to you or from room to room. So TVs would sit on a catering tray that had legs that came down with wheels in the bottom. Yeah. And the TV had antennas sticking up at yep. the top, which is one partial description of this craft, isn't it? Yeah. You're right. It seems like an appliance... Fitting of the time, yes. Except it flies. Except, that, except this TV flies. But wasn't there a window at the top? No, there of was it? a nine-inch window. Yeah, on the front. But well, he the, said he the, couldn't see anything inside. Yeah, but the TV also has a glass front on it. So there, are, like you said earlier, and we're connecting this all together. It's possibly elements of our perceived reality that we already know mishmashed into something or hiding something. Or just because that's the only thing we can wrap our heads around. Well, it's interesting. That's how it appears.
3: Yeah, and there's a cultural influence on what these people are seeing. So then some people will just go, right. So what the truth is here is that this is all made up. All these things are hoaxes. People are making it up and they're just making up whatever they think, you know, their limited imagination can bring to the table. Yeah, or it's the other way around, which is the other theory that we're positing when we have all these witnesses saying these things. And, you know, maybe Tad Jones just wanted his little piece of fame in the UFO flap, but- uh, I guess, maybe. It's another one of those stories that's so crazy. And then Keel is corroborating the events in a larger picture yeah. that go outside of what Tad Jones saw. This stuff kept happening to him. Listen to this excerpt from Keel's book. A few days before leaving New York, I called Gray Barker, who we're going to talk about a lot in part four on the theories- in Clarksburg, and he agreed to meet me the following Tuesday in Point Pleasant. As soon as he hung up, I dialed Woody Derenberger's unlisted number and spoke to his wife. Quote, When are you coming to see us again? she asked. I expect to be in West Virginia next week, I replied. I know. I hear you're having a secret meeting with Gray Barker on Tuesday. I was stunned. I'm meeting with Gray, I admitted, but it's not very secret. I didn't know about it myself until a couple of minutes ago, so how on earth did you know? There was a pause. Well, Charlie Cutler over in Ohio told us about it a couple of days ago, she finally said. And how did he know about it? I I don't know. I suppose he heard it somewhere. These things are happening out of time. Yeah. And that goes back to another encounter that we will talk about a little bit more in part four. I don't want to leave it out of the series that a gentleman had with a Indrid Cold type named Vadik, V-A-D-I-Q, who said the famous phrase from the movie whenever he was leaving him, I'll see you in time. Right. And this is another case of like, he just made an arrangement and a few minutes later they're like, oh no, I heard about this days ago. Yeah. So there's either a predestination or a predetermined fate or someone who has got a whole lot of more insight over how our world works than we do is really messing with Keel.
2: It's maybe a little like the Philadelphia experiment when you rev this thing up and it's it's creating a huge electromagnetic waves and you're screwing with matter and you shut it down again, people, sailors are now materialized inside of solid metal. Yeah. All those crazy stories you heard about that. People saw the ship disappear and they could see in the slip Where the battleship was. And it's just like the water had been hollowed out. A hole in the water. A hole in the water, but the ship's not there. Maybe when you start affecting these types of uh, either machinery or just uh, you're manipulating this stuff to be able to travel through dimensions, there's a whole lot of side effects that are screwy that even the travelers don't have total control over. Or again, as we mentioned previously... The reason that they're able to see through time and space and different things is that they're just in a different vantage point that we have no understanding of. Yeah. And so it's not psychic really, it's no, just but that it's they like, can see through something that for all intents and purposes appears solid to us, if you well, know what i it's like Flatland, one of my favorite yeah. short books of all time, you look down at the
3: piece of paper and this story is evolving between a circle on the paper and a line on the paper. Yeah, But the paper is two dimensional and the circle and the line appear identical to each other in that world. But from us looking down on the paper, we can see that one's a circle and that one's a line. However, when they face each other on that single dimension, they both look like lines. Yeah, right, right.
2: So, did I blow your mind yet? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what does a point in space look like? You know, Cogswell had mentioned that in the the river there, that it's a theoretical point. There's no ball there, you know what I'm saying? It's not a ball that represents the point. All it's for real.
3: us, it's all relative to the earth and it, the earth's it's all position. Relative.
2: Talking about the bigger picture, like, yeah, is math just a human construct so we can understand our world? It seems to be correct, yeah. but there's differences. Now, what he talked about, you have the idea of math being able to construct, and what I love about math is that it's perfect, there's a beauty to it, there's a poetry to it. If you talk talking about people who do really high level math. Cyclic numbers. Exactly. So there's that aspect, but on the other hand, I was watching a documentary on quantum physics and it was a NOVA, I think, episode, and, and they said, well, in the engineering world at those high levels, math doesn't always work out 100% right. all the time. In engineering, there is such a thing as close enough right, and that you may not get the math on it to work out perfectly, and then in the real world it may not have a total 100% application. So you get it there, it works, that's good enough. Close enough for government work. Well, there you go. It really (laughs) is government work. So that's the difference between uh, something that's theoretically perfect or calculable and considering what? the collapse of the bridge close enough the oh, government dear. works a really bad
3: joke. Oh. Well, I didn't, I didn't even make that connection. I didn't either till after I said it. No disrespect intended. Well, let's move on to some more of the things that were happening to Kiel because there was a ton of them. And he noted that by the middle of July 1967, he essentially had a network of communications that were aimed at him from what he referred to as three different systems. And this is how these systems worked. One was that he would ask someone in his group of contactees a question, and they would then relay it to them, in quotes, and he would get an answer back. And contactees were anybody that had had an experience, and he had all their numbers, whether it was Woody. there, It wasn't just the people that are in the book. He's been dealing with people all over the country. He's flying to North Carolina, where a UFO landed. He's going everywhere. So he has a network of contactees. And whatever is happening, them are giving messages to him through the contactees. So that's one way he would get information. He would deliberately make these questions that he would send to this omniscient force, whatever it is, particularly difficult to research answers to. Like now in this day and age with the internet, not such a big deal, but he was purposefully trying to put questions forward that were either ultra personal and very difficult to get the information or that at the very least would require a trip to the Library of Congress (laughs) in person. And what would happen was he would hear back like the next day from a contactee who lived in the middle of nowhere in Maryland with the answer. And Uh, it would be right. Like we said, he was empirical. He's trying to prove- Like a double blind study again. Yes, that something is going on. And these things were happening. So- he also found out that he could send things in the mail to what he later determined weren't even real addresses and he would get responses. Sometimes the very next day and the answers would be written in
2: block type. Wait a second, he's getting a letter back? Yes. <laughs> From,
3: he's when getting he a put letter a question back. question in, put the thing in the mail yeah. to an address that he had gotten. He just,
2: oh no, he received the address. He received the address oh, okay, through his go. network and then he okay. would
3: mail it. But yeah. later when things started to come apart, he would examine the addresses, they weren't real.
2: Ah, uh, so it's a
3: place out of time. And or, then he get an answer yeah. and block type.
2: Reminds me of uh, the scene in 12 Monkeys where Bruce Willis has to leave a message to the future he goes to a specific payphone, leaves a message to a, some voice answering machine in yeah. the future. Yeah. And that's how he's able to communicate. Or in Looper where he has to scratch uh, letters into open. his arm yeah. as a young man. And of course, as an older man, they start to form his scars on his forearm. Yeah. So these are the ways that you can communicate through time and space, but this is, I love that idea. And here's the weirdest part. Other times, a contactee would
3: call Keel and tell him that an entity was present in his or her house and wished to speak to Keel. He would ask questions and the entity would whisper answers to the contactee who would then tell Keel the answer over the phone. On some rare occasions, a strange voice would come directly onto the line and speak with him. Keel assumed that the contactee was in some kind of trance for this and that it was just the contactee's voice being shifted almost like a possession.
2: Ooh. But he doesn't know. He's the putty, the yeah, medium.
3: exactly. He's the putty. Here's another shirt, I think. I want to be the putty? No, <laughs> I don't want to be the putty. That's why I'm not going to Greyfriars. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. No,
2: but I want to hear you speak in kind of weird uh, tones. Yeah. yeah. I'll be sure to put that up on uh, the Facebook page. Right. Yeah.
3: Also, during this time, Keel's phone was ringing off the hook all hours of the day and night. With nothing but beeps and electronic sounds, his phone bill was outrageous because oh all this stuff was happening. <laughs> he went through a whole thing with the FBI trying to find out if it was tapped. He had the phone company come; they came and took him down into the basement, showed him where the trunk line was. All this stuff—nothing yeah. was tapped. Wow! And he was that freaked out about it. He finally just stopped paying the bill, and it got disconnected. And it would still ring. <laughs> So well, that's a
2: cheap way to get out of your phone bill. Yeah, there yeah.
3: was all this kind of stuff happening with these sounds and stuff. And then other things are happening where he's being professionally screwed with as well. Right. He had a publisher who said, I need something, you know, you haven't sent me anything in a while, you know, because as a writer, a freelance writer like yeah. this, you're constantly sending stuff to True Magazine or wherever. Oh, sure. Trying to make a buck. Yeah. And this publisher asked him to send something. He got some manuscript out of his trunk and he looked at it. It was his, he wrote it and he was like, oh, this is a good one. I wrote this a while back. It's a fun little short story or whatever. Yeah. He ships it to the guy. He said there was what he called a deafening silence. And which is, this is what, when a creative person says that, that means you've been completely rejected. He was like, I didn't hear anything. <laughs> right. So finally he calls back and the guy's like, yeah, we can't publish that. And he's like, can you send it back to me? Yeah. Sends it back to him. It's a completely horribly written thing that he never wrote with his name on it and everything. (laughs) What, somebody's ghostwriting for him? Somebody took the thing that he mailed, the manuscript he mailed, and replaced it with a really bad manuscript. And on top of that, it wasn't like he accidentally grabbed the wrong one from his trunk. It was a totally different typeface and everything. So even if he had absentmindedly grabbed the wrong manuscript from his trunk when he sent it out to be published... It still would have been something that he wrote. This didn't even have the typeface from his typewriter on it.
2: So his story wouldn't actually get out. It was but so it wasn't even it about published. the
3: story. It was just about undermining him professionally and messing with his mind. It wasn't even about what the story was. Right. It was
2: just about replacing his work. So here's the question. To what greater purpose? What's the point of that? To divert him from the truth?
3: Yeah, like, I yeah. I think it's well, gaslighting. I think it's paranormal gaslighting. Explain that. All right, so gaslighting is a term. So a lot of people will know what it means and others won't. The beauty of it is that its origin is from a movie called Gaslight, right? where the main character is trying to make this woman think that she is completely insane. I think it's his wife. I've yeah. seen it be
2: yeah, in film school years ago. Yeah,
3: so that's gaslighting. When you're just like, I just saw you on the front porch. How'd you get out here? It's you can go out of your way to make someone feel like they've lost their mind and that's what it seemed like was happening. Now, here's something really important that I want to mention now and we're going to talk about it in part 4 more in depth. There is definitely a strong possibility that a portion of some of this stuff was gray barker
2: messing with keel. Yeah, which is pretty messed up.
3: Yes, it is. And in, we're going to way, yeah. we're going to talk about gray barker more. However, that might explain even some phone calls, some weirdness, some of that stuff. But the things in terms of the omniscient type things, that's not something that Gray Barker
2: could have done. Yeah, there's no hacking into stuff back then.
3: Right. And we mentioned in part three the whole thing about the Pope. Contactees began mentioning the attempt of an assassination attempt on the Pope. That wasn't all. A character similar to Indrid Cold had been in touch with a contactee in a place called Mount Misery which is on Long oh Island. Boy. When I started looking into Mount Misery, I had never heard of it. This yeah. place is a paranormal hotbed. It is yeah. easily an episode in itself. Keel had a whole thing that went on there, including a contactee who had a relationship with a man like Indrid Cold, who called himself Apple, A-P-O-L, pronounced Apple. Yeah. Apple was constantly messing with Keel. Keel never met him and never supposedly even spoke to him, but information would come to him from various contactees mostly in the Mount Misery area, Yeah, from Apple. And Apple was kind of gossipy and into pop culture. And so... <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah, so Apple apparently had expressed to Kiel that he had wanted to talk about Marilyn Monroe and Robert Kennedy. <laughs> sure. And he advised Kiel to tell RFK that he should stay away from hotels.
2: Aha, uh-huh. Well, we both know which hotel that is, don't we? Yes. I think we've both been there.
3: In June of the next year, RFK was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And we have both been there. It's since been torn down. But uh, it used to be a, a main shooting location in Los Angeles. A lot of movies were shot there, including in uh, Marilyn Monroe performed at the Coconut Grove, which yeah. was the club there. And then in True Lies, when he rides the horse through the hotel lobby, yeah. that was the lobby of the ambassador. Right. I think it now belongs to the Los Angeles School District, and I know they were going to tear it down.
2: No, it's now a, uh, a learning arts center or some kind yeah, of... There's it's, yeah, there's a new it's, structure. It's, it's, it's been torn down because it's very valuable property because of its location.
3: Yeah, and it had secret hallways and all kinds. Con- oh, I,
2: I was there at, a, at a, a film shoot, so I got to roam the hotel. And I tell you, when you uh-huh. go, it, portions of it are lighted, of course, even down these long, dark hallways. And I totally got a massive shining vibe looking it down the hallway. And it's like, should I just go peek into the rooms? And I think most of them are locked. It's pretty buttoned up. But well I
3: got into the rooms and they yeah. were empty, but there was a ton of graffiti. And you weren't oh, in, supposed inside, to
2: wa- inside the rooms. Yeah. So and people on have the been floor in there. that I was at. But
3: yeah. my wife, it was a long time ago and she was shooting there. And yeah. you know, we weren't supposed to wander around, but well, we did.
2: Yeah, but did you go down to the kitchen where went I went to the kitchen and, and saw did you the see tile. The, you saw the tile.
3: Yeah. There was a tile in the kitchen. This is pretty amazing. And I don't know what happened to this tile when the building got torn down. I kind of can't believe that nobody took it ahead uh, of time, maybe but it had an did. X in it. Yeah. And it was supposedly the spot where RFK's head lay when he lay dying on the floor there. There was a
2: bullet hole in the wall uh, as well. I think that was cut out. Yes. forensically you For know, the trial. The, yes, for the yeah. trial. But the X, some unknown person put an X down there where they laid him down on the floor before he was moved. Uh, right. And before he was attended to. And if you want to get crazy, I'll... Uh, They'll tease this a little. There was a woman wearing a polka dot dress that put her hand on the shoulder of Sirhan Sirhan right before he...
3: Yeah,
2: we're going to have to do
3: the, the FK episodes. Oh,
2: yeah. Hey, Scott. When you want to find the best price on something you need, do you just drive to a brick and mortar store hoping they're going to have the lowest prices on the highest quality products available? Of course not. I
3: shop online first, and I see what the best prices are. And not only that, most physical stores don't carry
2: all the coolest products I know are out there. Exactly. Nowadays, no smart shopper just gets in the car first. And even if you go to an online shopping site, they're just going to carry what every other store is offering. That's why Harrys.com is changing the way everyone shops for shaving products.
3: Well, that just makes sense because Harry's owns their own razor blade manufacturing plant in Germany. So not only can they cut out the middleman that physical stores have to go through, which ups the price
2: by about half, they can also keep a close eye on the quality of their products. And with Harry's.com, we're talking about a five-bladed razor cartridge with a new, softer flex hinge for better contouring, a lubricating strip for better glide, a trimmer blade for those hard-to-reach places, and a sleek, textured handle for more control, even when it's wet. Not only that,
3: Harry's has some of the best shave lotions and creams I've ever tried. I swear by their post-shave balm. And yes, even though I sport a beard, I still got a trim around it, and it's those places that are more delicate. Harry's is so confident you're going to like their post-shave balm too, they'll give you one for free as a special offer to our listeners. Just enter the promo code LEGENDS at checkout to get your free tube. And if you're still skeptical, You can get their free trial set, which includes a razor, a five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel when you subscribe. All you have to pay is $3 for shipping.
2: And as a subscriber, you'll get a personal Harry's concierge who checks in on you to make sure you're stocked up and happy with everything you get. That also helps keep you from chewing up your face with that last dull blade because you keep forgetting to overpay for some new ones at the store. So go to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S
3: dot com and enter the code LEGENDS at checkout
2: to get your free trial set plus a free post-shave balm. Once again, that's harrys.com and use promo code LEGENDS. Oh, man. What? What's wrong? Well, as soon as we're done recording here, I have to
3: cook dinner for the family, and with all the writing and research, I didn't have time to go grocery shopping.
2: Wow, you are such a disappointment. Uh, But wait a minute, you don't have to go shopping for dinner fixins because you're still subscribed to Blue Apron. You're right, I was just fishing for some sympathy. But seriously, Blue
3: Apron really is a huge problem solver for me and my family because although I love cooking, grocery shopping, not so much. And who wants to make time for that these days?
2: Yeah, that and you also come out looking like a hero because Blue Apron makes it easy to serve up delicious, restaurant-quality meals with seasonal, artisanal ingredients sourced from their community of family-run farms, fisheries,
3: and ranchers and we've never eaten so well with so much variety. I mean, I have my standard favorite dishes I make, but even I get tired of those after a while. Blue Apron creates their menus weekly, and they're not repeated within a year. You can choose your meals from a variety of recipes or let
2: Blue Apron's team of chefs surprise you with their picks. It also couldn't be more flexible. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Then choose the delivery options that are most convenient for you. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. You know what else is awesome?
3: I'm getting ready to travel for Thanksgiving, and they actually allow you to donate those meals to people in need. Oh, that's very nice. Uh, you can skip. Oh, or that's you can what i yeah, You don't go on vacation awesome.
2: and you get a pile up of food <laughs>
3: at your doorstep. Exactly. You, you get can, to choose. You can choose. And making the meals is also fun and easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can generally be prepared in about 40 minutes or less. It's really sparked my love of cooking again and improved my kitchen skills, not to mention my Michelin star ranking as the family chef. Check out this week's menu
2: and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to
3: create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to
0: cook.
2: Hi, I'm Chris, host of Return to Camp Blood, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the
1: show.
3: All right, so anyway, he had received advanced information on that. Keel was getting advanced information on other assassinations and global, world-changing events. And he didn't know what to do with the information, and not only that, Keel was starting to feel burdened with... How am I supposed to interpret this? Because the information is coming in. It's about these significant political figures. He even claimed that he had information about Martin Luther King's assassination. And he had the nature of his death, that it would be on a balcony where it would be. And he had the date, but the date was wrong. He said he tried to reach out to King's people. He could not get in touch with him. And I think that whatever the month was that he had, it wasn't the actual month of his assassination. So there was always something that wasn't quite right. And we mentioned in part two, there was additionally the information that he had received about Point Pleasant. And he had been led to believe that what he called a power plant was gonna blow up and lots of people were gonna die. And we read you that letter that he wrote to Mary Heyer in part two. So that was when he became convinced that something was gonna happen there. And he says power plant in the book, but I feel like the power plant was a cover-up. TNT? No. No. There was nothing at the TNT area to blow up. I think what he was concerned about and what he was protecting because he was concerned that it was a defense secret at the time was the DLA, the Defense Logistics Agency, that is in Point Pleasant and still there to this day.
2: That's actually what I meant.
3: Yeah, yeah, not (laughs) TNT.
2: No, you're right, yeah. Yeah,
3: so, and that is an area that theoretically could be using, moving or storing weapons-grade Nuclear materials, yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that was what he wanted to imply, and I think that's why they made the reference to the power plant, both in the book and in the movie, there wasn't a power plant that was a problem. I think he was trying intentionally to be a little vague about it. Yeah. So he is getting all this information. He's also getting information about blackouts. He thinks these blackouts gonna come, all the power is gonna be a catastrophic blackout. And then 70s blackouts were a bigger deal.
2: Oh, there was a huge one. Yeah,
3: Yeah. and and, and they're still a big deal, but you really, there was a lot of concern about crime at that time. So you had to really get prepped up
2: for that kind of thing. Yeah, there was a bad one in New York across the eastern seaboard. Yes. Uh, And of course, people just went looting. Exactly.
3: And that's what everyone was concerned about, that kind of thing would unfold. So he would be getting the information from the contactees that this blackout's coming. And that's what he was prepared for on the... Or December 15th, I should say, when the bridge collapsed. Right. He was prepared for a blackout. And he had, as we mentioned in part two, a friend of his over. They had candles and flashlights, and they were just kind of waiting for when the president lit the tree, the Christmas tree. President, Which president was it? I keep forgetting. Johnson? Oh, uh, yes. Johnson, President Johnson. And the tree lit up, and nothing happened. And he was like, oh, that's strange. And then they had the breaking news thing came on. Right. A bridge has collapsed on the Ohio River. We already told you that story. So the question is, why is he getting all this information. Going back to the attempt on Pope Paul, here's another example of how this played out for him. It's an excerpt from his book. Convinced that Pope Paul was about to be knifed to death at the Istanbul airport, I rented a car, loaded it with flashlights, candles, food, and bottled water, and drove out to the Mount Misery area to await the blackout, because there had been an implied blackout that was going to happen with
2: that as well. I don't know if I'd want to wait it out at, at a place called Mount Misery. Well, he had a lot of contactees there. <laughs> he, right.
3: he knew the area. No, no, yeah, he's yeah. familiar with it, sure. So on the way, I stopped to see one of my contactees, and he informed me that a spaceman had just been to see him and had left a silly message. Quote, tell John we'll meet with him later and help him drink all that water, end quote. The contactee had no idea that I had several quarts of spring water in the trunk of the car. So then he gets closer to Mount Misery. He picks out a motel randomly. The motel clerk comes up to see his identification, which he said was really strange. He presents his, I guess, his driver's license. This is John Keel. The clerk says, we've got a lot of messages for you here, Mr. Keel. She pulled out a sheaf of message slips. I started to protest since I had not even known I was going to stay at that motel until minutes before. The messages were all nonsensical, meant only to prove once more that my movements were being anticipated. As we said in part two, three years after this, on November 27th, 1970, there was an attempt on Pope Paul VI's life at the Manila airport. It wasn't Istanbul. The Middle Eastern portion of the information he received and the date were wrong. He knows that these things are critically important, But there's puzzle pieces that are missing. The date and the location isn't right. Yeah. And so it's useless to him other than to just
2: freak him out. But is that the point? Or is it something like, well, it's an alternate time stream, an alternate reality that is fading in and out that nobody can seem to really get correct? Or is it just the trickster prankster element? Here's the other thing about it.
3: Mary Heyer, too, was having dreams about what was about to happen in Point Pleasant. He was actually flying back to the Point Pleasant area After checking on some UFO sightings or landings in North Carolina, and he landed at whatever airport you fly into, and Mary Heyer picked him up from the airport. And so they're riding into town. She's probably taking him to his hotel, which he always stayed at, which I think was the Blue Fountain Inn, Mm -hmm. which is now a Regency Inn, I think. I looked it up. That was John Keel's headquarters. It was in Gallipolis Ferry. (laughs) And uh, she had picked him up from the airport, and she said, just before I got your letter, I had a terrible nightmare. There were a lot of people drowning in the river, and Christmas packages were floating everywhere in the water. He said, maybe you were just picking up my thoughts somehow. She said, maybe, but I've covered a lot of drownings on that river. Never anything like this dream. There were so many people. I've been feeling uneasy ever since, and everybody else feels the same way. You can't really put your finger on it, but it's like something awful is about to happen. She also said, ever since all this flying saucer business last spring, things just haven't seemed right. We don't get many UFO reports anymore, Mary told me, and except for that thing Mrs. Thomas saw, Mothman seems to be laying low. Everything is quiet, too quiet. Not too long after that, as we described in Part 2, the Silver Bridge collapsed under a heavy load of rush hour traffic on December fifteenth, 1967, just as John Keel was awaiting a blackout that he thought was coming when the president lit the Christmas tree at the White House. Mary's dream came true. There were Christmas presents floating in the water. 46 people died. Two of them were never recovered and things were about to get quieter. So you can see how all these events that have happened and Keel wouldn't even realize the thing about the Pope assassination attempt until three years later. And so it continued to get this information that he just couldn't do anything with. And what are the motivations, as they say in the movie? Well, their motivations are not human, as you quoted already in a prior episode, and that's a line from the movie, but it does seem that way in a way. Why was he singled out to be a little bit in the know about all of
2: these pending events? Well, there's people that I believe are more Prone, targeted, maybe. Uh, I was, you know, listening to a uh, interview with uh, David Weatherly when he talks about. Uh, he's another author. He's done uh, books on the uh, the Black Eyed Kids, and uh, I I think he knew Keel and uh, and is a friend of Brad Steiger's. You know, everybody in this kind of field kind of eventually gets to know each other and, and what they're about, and. He had a friend that just said, "I don't like driving with you. We always see something weird." <laughs> you know, what I'm right. he's ter- so he's always on the lookout for strange things happening. And I believe we relayed that before, where they come around a bend and he saw a grinning man standing by the side of the road in the patch of the weeds. The friend is terrified; doesn't want to go back. Finally, he convinces them and uh, they go back. And of course, he's not there, but they can see where this person was standing. This very tall, garish-looking harlequin with an impossible smile. Like Keel, he's tuned into this, which is maybe why people like this get into this field. Brad Steiger said the same thing. He was born and raised in a very old, very old building, which was a stagecoach stop. And he said it was completely haunted, so much though as a little child, these old ghosts would talk to him, which I find... Frightening because usually people see ghosts and they kind of wisp away. They're doing their thing or whatever they did in life. I see stagecoach people. <laughs> he saw stagecoach people. It reminds me. It was at fourteen oh eight. The uh, that was a terrifying aspect in that where John Cusack is staying in the room as a bat and he starts seeing these apparitions and then they kind of turn and look directly at him. Which that part's not supposed to happen. They're not really yeah. supposed to interact directly with you.
3: The stagecoach stop. Yeah. Lay lines, roads, intersections, exactly. injured, cold. Chief Cornstalk, the fort, everything, all happening at intersections of travel.
2: Why does that happen? Why do we pick the roads we do? Well, that's where it's like water passing through, finding the least resistance. You don't cut a a hole directly into a mountain unless you have to, you find a road that naturally lays out. So like he was saying though, he was prone to the supernatural, Brad Steiger was, even as a small child. So there are certain people I believe that are really in tune with this stuff. Uh, We're not for better or worse, but we're interested in it. So it yeah. could be kind of a you know curse. Like though, you said, it's what, a burden. Keel says yeah. himself, though, that he's the poor schlub with the wrong
3: aura. And that's why he's not getting the right information. Say that again, please. There's <laughs> Somewhere in the book he said there are other people that are getting everything right or they're getting... They're more, more things in right. tune, yes. yes, more things right. And that he's the schlub that's like thinks the power plant's going to blow up when in fact the bridge is going to
2: collapse. Yeah, that's he's Like
3: he's a little out of whack <laughs> right. is what he seemed to think of himself.
2: Well, that's really hard to say because it's, I'm sure he's totally frustrated because people's lives are at stake and he is unable to do anything about it. And so that must be tremendously frustrating. But what's the purpose here? You know, from the other side, wherever this information is coming from, is to say like, hey, this is going to happen. Look out. Well, you know, we can't really get it totally accurate. So something's going to happen. Just be prepared. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, good luck. Here's (laughs) a bit of information. And and sorry, that's confusing and frustrating, but that's the best that you're going to be able to receive. And there's an underlying theme with the
3: whole process, with the whole book and with everything that happened as he documented it. With every encounter in the small picture and then in the bigger picture, and even when he starts getting all this information about these events, and the theme is they don't seem to know exactly when anything is going to happen or what time it is right now. Yeah, There's something about that. For yeah. me, when I look at this book and these stories on an instinctual level, and not just Keel's book, but all the other things that we've looked at, there's
2: something about the fact that they don't seem to know when it is. Right, maybe because everything's already happened all at once, and one long, continuous now, there is no past, there is no future, it's just now. I know that's a really hard concept to wrap. Your no, head and around.
3: that was a, Einstein had that theory. I believe that everything was happening at once. There's many people in our in the uh, research core that are a lot smarter and better educated than I am, but uh while you look that up. I do want to say that we're about to wrap the show up. But before we do, we wanted to talk a little bit about the actual
2: mechanical failure of the bridge and how that worked. From brainyquote.com, the only reason for time is so that everything doesn't happen at once. And it's attributed to our great Mr. Einstein. So however, that implies that time is a
3: problem. And some guy was like, hey, let's put time in there to fix this.
2: Okay, so cursorarily looking this up here, and this was in um, the skeptics.stackexchange.com questions. People say, you know, hey, did Einstein really say that? Well, the one answer here that gets a lot of votes, the oldest confirmed use of any version of this quote that I was able to find is from Ray Cummings' short story, The Time Professor, published in January 8, 1921, issue of Argosy All Story Weekly. And the quote here from the character is, I do know what time is, Tubby declared. He paused. Time, he added slowly, time is what keeps everything from happening at once. I know that. I see it in print, too. And then he used it again, Ray Cummings did in his uh, novel, The Girl in the Golden Atom, published in 1922. So he says it twice there. And of course, the entry goes on to say, this quote has been mistakenly attributed to Albert Einstein, Richard Feynman, Woody Allen, John Archibald Wheeler, and likely others in many different forms. So there you go. You can chew on that. But the principle is the same. Time is a perspective for us humans, so our heads don't explode. You, You do age. There are things about our physical world that you have to contend with. You kick a rock. You hurt your toe, as can be witnessed in the movie, what the bleep do we know? So... There are things that you have to deal with, but you often have to realize that the rock you're kicking, as well as your toe, are mostly made up of empty space due to the massive atoms and subatomic particles being very low. So most of it is empty space. So basically, your whole reality is nothing but a sham. (laughs) (laughs) And time is just a perspective so that you can live your life. Right. Otherwise, you know, how do you deal with everything happening at once? And that's the other big, big question. If everything happens at once... And there is no past, there is no future, there is only now, which I think is also a Buddhist philosophy that has everything that's ever even possible happened and has already happened, has happened, is happening, will happen in the future. So, but all of it's together. So. kind sound a little bit like Donald Rumsfeld. No, there's no, we list. don't, we know, we don't know. You know what? That's <laughs> the thing about that saying is that we say it at work sometimes. It's yeah. like, we don't know what we don't know. And that's a valid point. Yeah. There's things I don't know about, but I know of them. I know it's coming up. I should study that. I don't know about that. Right. Like there the are... next episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, we don't even know what that is. So yeah. there are things that we don't know. Yeah. We know we don't know them. So, All right. Let's yeah. talk about the bridge. It's time to... Here's the culmination of this entire string of, of events. Unfortunately, a tragedy. That, right. That, and... that we're saying people had a feeling that something bad now for a whole 13 months... People of this town and John Keel, not exclusively, have felt that something bad is going to happen.
3: Well, it's funny that you mentioned the number 13 because there's sort of an odd numerical thing going on with the bridge collapse. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but Marie Mayhew, who is one of our illustrious members at the Astonishing Research Corps, dug up the actual traffic report from the collapse of the bridge. A lot of pages are missing from it. It's scanned. It's online. It's odd that there's pages missing. I don't believe it's a conspiratorial thing. I think it's just
0: <laughs> kind of that
3: classic sort of Somerton yeah. man thing, old files, you know, pages disappear. Ah, sure. Whatever. So,
2: yeah, not uh, redacted.
3: Not redacted. So what I want to do here is I'm going to read a little bit from the conclusion section of the report. Conclusions. It is concluded that at about 5 p.m. on December 15th, 1967, The U.S. 35 Highway Bridge between Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and Kanaga, Ohio, suddenly collapsed with the three suspended portions falling into the Ohio River and on the Ohio shore within a period of one minute. Of the 64 persons and the 31 vehicles that fell with the bridge, 44 died and two are still missing. Nine persons were injured. All of the 24 vehicles that fell into the water were recovered. There was no evidence of sabotage of the bridge or of any vehicle. The bridge did not fail because of aerodynamic instability. The bridge was not overloaded by vehicle weight at the time of collapse based upon the designed vehicle loading. The collapse was sudden. It was preceded by several cracking sounds in the Ohio side span superstructure near the Ohio tower. The collapse began in the Ohio side span, with this span falling first, with the downstream truss twisting upstream and falling on top of the upstream truss, trapping vehicles. That's on page 59. Page 60 is missing. Uh, That was item eight in the conclusions category. Page 61 is present though, and it starts with item number 13, which explains really what happened. So I just want to remind you to pay attention to your threes here. Cogs says we're crazy for attributing any value to all <laughs> these numbers,
2: but this is why is he even listening to all of this? Why is he even here? <laughs> yeah, the, although he can't help himself. He, it's, it fascinates him. No, he as loves us it. as well. But. He loves it. But, and, and, yeah. and we love him. But,
3: yes, yeah. we're glad to have him, but he is our skeptic on board, as I've said before. But in terms of the the numbers here, just listen to these numbers, paragraph 13 of the conclusions of the collapse of the Silver Bridge. Joint C13 of the North Ohio Side Span I-bar chain came apart during the collapse, with I-bar 330 fracturing completely across its eye at joint C13. I-bar 33 separated from the pin at joint C13 either before or after I-bar 330 fractured. The sequence of failure of joint C13N will be determined after completion of laboratory tests. Further investigation and analysis of all facts developed during the investigation. All right, I can go on. It's pretty dry civil engineering type stuff. And uh, mm. I'm pretty familiar with what happened to the bridge. So yeah. I just want to talk about it a little bit.
2: Just Yeah, put it in layman's terms and, so we can understand.
3: I will. And by the way, we have a link to... No, a couple, no pun intended. Yes. Mm. A link to a couple of videos that explain there was a big reconstruction. They built models. There's another university called Open University. I found the link today that's yeah. going to be in our links that actually has a, uh, a 3D rendering of how the bridge fell from the perspective of being in the car, which is pretty fascinating.
2: Well, you'd mentioned something interesting about it wasn't associated with aerodynamic instability, which right. means high winds passing through. Now, that reminded me of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which... Collapse, but there's actually footage of that, and that was yes. early. That was the early 30s. Yeah, we in the should 30s. we
3: should share that. I can't remember yeah. when that happened, but you do see the bridge had a it's vibration. It's twisting. There
2: are cars on it. There are people. There's fortunately there's only a few people that are running for their lives. And yeah. I, I don't even know how you would stand up when there's a um, confluence of winds, and again like that sine wave we said when you're peaking at a maximum apex there, that crazy things can happen. Yeah, not with this case.
3: No, and here's what went wrong with this bridge. It was as many articles have pointed out designed to fail. And there's a reason for that. It used for its suspension, the way a suspension bridge works is that the cables that go to the towers and back to anchors on the land support the road deck below.
2: You're holding it up. That's what you're suspending. Yes,
3: you're suspending it. And there's flexibility, which is good because bridges need it for wind and for the loads that come across. Now, the bridge was built, I believe, in 1928. And when it was designed, The Model T or whatever weighed about 1,500 pounds, and trucks at most were 20,000 pounds, I think. Well, that wasn't a new design either. That design, the I-bar design, had been around for 100 years about. Yeah, Yeah. it had been around, and they reinforced the deck over the years because some people said, oh, there were too many cars, there were modern cars on it. It was actually supposed to last from 1928 till 2028. So, uh, there you go. It was supposed to be a 100 year bridge. Now, the easiest way to explain I bar construction is when you, because I didn't really understand what that meant until I started really digging in on this. But essentially, when you look at a suspension bridge, usually it has cables, like the Golden Gate Bridge has this <laughs> big cable, and that cable is made up of like a thousand little cables all intertwined and wrapped around each
2: other for yeah. strength right. and
3: Cause redundancy.
2: Now, think about this. You might logically think if you had a, say, a five or six inch diameter solid piece of core steel yeah. in a rod, and you think, well, that's solid steel, that's really heavy, it's really strong. Well, actually, a cable that is five or six inches in diameter, made up of thousands of little strands, is much more strong.
3: Exactly, and much more reliable, and it has, again, this is an important word, redundancy.
2: Exactly, because if, even if a few of those strands break, the strength of the remaining ones will hold it together. Exactly. And that's what we, what we say about redundancy. Now, I wanted to say, when you talk about i bar, kind of picture a needle with eyelets on both ends.
3: Well, you know the thing that I thought about when I thought yeah. about it? Well, I was like, what is this eye bar? And I thought, oh, that's not very long, whatever. On this bridge, they were 30 feet, I believe, long. Yeah. yeah. And they look exactly like that little thing on your bicycle chain. So when you look at a bike chain, this that's it, yes, what the exactly. suspension was. It's essentially a giant bike chain. The thing is, even a bike chain has a couple of those stacked up together in some exactly, cases. Exactly, yes. This bridge did not have enough duplicated I bars to keep it strong. I think it only had two, maybe one or two. So what yeah, would happen two with is- two a uh, per span, I think, but- When um, you look at the bicycle chain and you see where a link of it connects to the next link, there's a little pin that holds them all together. If you scale this up, that's exactly how that bridge was built. What happened was I bar 330 had apparently been- treated incorrectly when the steel was forged. When it was manufactured, right. And so it already had some fatigue built into it. And then over the years, the bridge had seen a lot of traffic and the weight went up. They added weight to the road deck and supposedly they beefed things up. They did not necessarily beef up the suspension mechanism though, because it was considered to be super strong and well within its range.
2: And nor did they maintain it properly over the years, that's another huge factor.
3: Right, they inspected it, but the problem was, what happened was at the end of Ibar 330, there had been about a 3 millimeter crack in the bottom of it that they couldn't see. It was sandwiched in and when they inspected it was not something that they could see and they didn't really know what they were looking for. And this crack over time due to friction and vibration because the towers were actually designed to vibrate and give. They're called
2: rocker towers. Exactly.
3: They were supposed to have a little play to help the bridge survive because in engineering, when something is stiff, it breaks. And when it gives, it lasts a lot longer. It's actually stronger if it can give a little bit.
2: That would be opposed to a suspension chain that's lubricated in some way or over a tipping saddle so that the cable is able to go over the top of the tower. Right. In this instance, the towers are actually meant to bend. Sway. Yeah, sway just a little bit. Right. Like
3: a high rise does. If you ever go up in a really tall building like the Sears Tower or whatever. Oh yeah. You actually feel it swaying back and forth. They want it to do that because if it doesn't, the alternative is breaking in half.
2: You must bend like
3: a reed in the Wind. Exactly. And. So this I-bar had a little crack in it, and eventually it suffered. All these cars were stuck. A lot of cars were stuck on the bridge that night, and it just took it over the edge. What happened was the I-bar cracked, and when it did, it broke off of the pin, and the pin became askew with the yeah. other eye bars that were still on it. When it did that, the I-bar on the other side, which didn't have a failure, but now the whole joint is crooked. Yeah, and it has all this added stress on it because they've lost one of the I-bars.
2: And there's vibration of cars going
3: over. There's vibration. The whole thing just disassembles. And it's kind of like a domino effect. It's exactly what it is because it's yeah. the weakest leak in the chain. And because there wasn't a lot of redundancy in the construction of the suspension mechanism, that failure was a fatal event. It was a non-survivable scenario for the bridge.
2: Yeah, because yeah, usually when they'll do an eyebar bar construction, I think there's four to six I-bars in tandem there in parallel so that, that's what we talk about redundancy. If one fails, you have a lot more backing that up. Right, you hear a noise,
3: you clear the bridge, you inspect it and repair it. Yeah. That was not the case. here. That
2: was the thing though, also with this 2.5 millimeter fissure, this crack, which is from fretting wear. So implemented at the time of manufacture, And so buried down deep in there, you can't really inspect for that. There was no way for them to do it at that time. In addition to that, it was near freezing temperatures
3: that night, and the metal was exposed to a type of fatigue that made it more brittle because of the cold temperatures. Because of the
2: cold. And that's another horrible thing, I thought, people going into the water. That water was freezing cold, and the sun was setting. Yeah. What time was that? Do you remember exactly? It was a little after 5 p.m.? The collapse was, yeah, right around 5 p.m. Yeah, imagine that. And then you have this horrible tragedy, and first responders are trying to get there, and it's going dark.
3: Yeah, it was obviously a horrible scenario. And it's interesting to think about, there's a 3-D rendering, and you'll see the link in the show notes that shows from the perspective of someone approaching the bridge from the West Virginia side exactly how it went down. Because once that I bar snapped, which I bar... Um, 330 was on the northern side of the Ohio, Ohio, si- Ohio yeah, side of pillar. the bridge that rocker tower bowed forward yeah and it dropped there were three pieces of suspended roadway the first one went down and when it did it's taking all the other eye bars with it and it came down and took down this the middle roadway next and then the one on the West Virginia side of the bridge, and the perspective of the one woman who's in the one video, she was an eyewitness, she was on that. She was of, on the bridge, yeah. She was she, on the bridge, but she had close to the edge. Yeah, she hadn't gone to the piece of roadway that collapsed.
2: We have that link in, of that documentary uh, that was produced. I think we talked about this before, mainly in support of the film in 2002, but she was on that bridge in a vehicle, and I think she was able to back up enough that her car did not go in but she described it as she thought maybe a boat had hit one of the central towers it shook so hard and so quickly like a bang and then as witnesses described within a minute this whole thing's just started to unravel literally i mean it just it came down and in the, in the video there's also a gentleman who just over like he said if he was a car length behind he wouldn't have gone in he did go in but of course he was able to get out it's a sad story. And, well, and when people, they were going Christmas shopping. They, yeah. they would normally go across the bridge to uh Gala Police to go Christmas shopping and back and forth. Yeah. And, and as the workday was ending, they were coming back home.
3: And that goes right back to Mary's dream that she had a precognition. Presence or, in the water. Of the presence floating in the water, which they addressed in the movie. And again, another element in the movie that I thought was made up for drama was true. And Yeah. It's just a sad story, and what we're going to do is we're going to close out this episode, but in, when we come back for part four, we're going to talk a lot more about the theories, a few more of the incidents, but mostly about our theories about what happened in the area.
2: that's going to wrap it up for tonight. Join us in one week for our final part on the Mothman series, part four, where we'll discuss the theories behind the events that took place in Point Pleasant. We'll probably both be off the chain for that one. We'd like to thank
3: the Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, Harry's.com, and Blue Apron for sponsoring us. Please remember that supporting our sponsors helps support the show.
0: Hi, I'm Adam McCutcheon. I'm Jess Corbin. Hi,
2: I'm Chris Saunders, and I give permission, permission to
0: ast- Astonishing Legends to use my
1: voice.
2: However,
0: fits fit. Galaxy, Galaxy wide, in perpetuity. Perpetuity.
3: Our show right. is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is
2: by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google, and Instagram copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.